0: Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is technically a very exciting time for me because I'm actually in my actual office office doing this podcast. Before I've done a few of these podcasts and I've been in a conference room or whatever, but I wanted a more intimate setting with my guest today, Peter O'Fallon, because I've spent a lot of time with this guy recently pitching a television show with a young man named Brad Williams, who is pound for pound, the funniest man in comedy. Of course, he's 3 foot 8 inches tall, and I don't know if he weighs a 100 pounds or not. And before I start, I want to let you know that I always do this, and I hope you're not bored with it, but I'm very grateful for all your support. You guys are amazing. You guys have done so much to make the podcast a success. And these last few episodes that we've done with Warren Littlefield and Andy Kindler and Jeff Gaspin have been really, really amazing. And you guys have come out and listened to those in droves. And it's really been incredible. And the people at Apple have been so supportive, and I can't thank them enough as well. I want to thank you guys for going on the Amazon banner on my website. It doesn't cost you anything, and thank God Amazon gives some money to the Barry Cats Jewish Boy College Fund, which is very, very important for me. And maybe, maybe, if things go well with this podcast and more sponsors come in, I might be able to buy something that Peter has, Peter O'Fallon, when I went to his house, the single man's dream, the Roomba, the electronic (laughs) 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 vacuum cleaner. The greatest invention in the world. (laughs) But as always, as you know, I normally look at my guest and something just comes to me where I decide or I think to myself a story that might be kind of fun or inspirational to tell you. And I'm really excited about today because Peter is a very, very fascinating and unique guy. And I will share this, and I hope he doesn't jump over the couch and strangle me. When you hang out with Peter O'Fallon, There's normally a few different people in the world that you run into. There's the people who are the light. They walk into the room and the sun comes out and parts through the clouds and it's like, ah. And then there's the people who are the darkness where when they walk in the room, the clouds come together, it gets dark, it starts raining. And Peter, I would say, I would like to say, based on his incredible work, that I don't think he's the kind of guy who walks in the room and the clouds part and the sun shines and everything like that, but he's the kind of guy, when he comes in the room, he's a mixture of darkness and light because he has this thing about him that really is a force, a big force, also a dark force, but he also has this thing where he's the light as well. It's very hard to explain, but as we get into this, you'll understand the kind of lane that he likes to work in and it's a lane that very few people can do and Peter I would say and I truly believe this the greatest television show in my mind in the history of television and probably there's only been a few shows since a handful of shows that bring the darkness and the light together in a way that has people laughing uncontrollably one moment and then crying or feeling the gut punch the next. And for me what I grew up with was one of my guests from one of the podcasts before Norman Lear and All in the Family. And I can always remember these episodes where there'd be all this comedy and then a car would blow up and somebody would be in it, or there'd be all this comedy and then Edith was raped, or there'd be all this comedy and then Sally Struthers would cheat on Michael and Archie would side with Michael. And Peter O'Fallon, in the work that he normally does, or the work, shall I say, that I think moves him the most, is the work that allows him to travel from the darkness to the light. And back and the story that strikes me the most when I look at Peter is a story involving Peter and a very dear friend of mine and client of mine for some God knows 25 years Jay Moore and there was a movie that was getting put together by the brother of Jay Moore's agent at the time a really really great agent at a smaller mid-sized company called Abrams Artists, and his name was Joe Rice. And Joe happened to be brothers with a groundbreaking independent guy named Wayne Rice, who was a writer and a producer, but at the time he hadn't really done a lot. But he was a visionary, and he thought big, but he didn't have a lot of money. And he had a project that he co-wrote called Suicide Kings, which, if you haven't seen the movie, I strongly suggest you download it somewhere and watch it because it's one of the really great independent films that I've ever seen, and it has a cast that we'll talk about a lot that Peter had a hand in breaking a number of the different people who were in the cast, or if he didn't break them, he rallied around them, and he really made sure that they were a part of the film. And they might have done things before, but they certainly weren't household names, and I'm talking about people like Sean Patrick Flannery, who went on to do another movie that I thought was brilliant, very original film called Powder, Johnny Galecki, of course Jeremy Sisto, Brad Garrett, before Brad Garrett was Brad Garrett, But there was a role of a guy in the movie who was going to kidnap the main character, Christopher Walken, who hadn't been cast yet. And when Joe Rice read the script and he talked to his brother about it, naturally, when you're in that position, you try to push the artist that you're working with. And if your brother is involved, there's nepotism but the way it works in this town is that the director of a film especially an independent film who's given the keys to the kingdom a lot of times has more power than the young producer who's never done anything before or the young writer who's involved yes the financiers who probably helped put together the four million dollars that it cost might have a say but in the end Peter is the one who has to work with these people every day and make it work on the set. All they cared about was Christopher Walken. That's right. (laughs) And to show you how unbelievable a concept of this movie was for $4 million, you don't get Christopher Walken, even if it's 20 years ago, for under a million dollars. It doesn't happen. So you know that on your best day... If you can just get his agent to agree to a million dollars and you can board him, and when I say board him, for those of you who aren't in this crazy business, which means if you can schedule his scenes in the shortest amount of time, you have the best shot of getting him, which is what they did, unbelievably. And then they got Dennis Leary as well, who had done a few movies, one with Kevin Spacey that was pretty good called The Ref., and they got him for a cameo. They probably had to pay him, I would say, probably 100000 to 200000 for one or two days or a week. And then the rest, Peter, has this budget that's $6 and a bucket of chicken, and he's got to make magic, which he did. But he had a person he needed to cast in this role as sort of like a young, asshole kind of guy of the group. And I remember we called Cameron Crowe and asked him to make a phone call to Peter O'Fallon because Jay Moore had just done a great movie called Jerry Maguire. And Cameron called Peter, which held a lot of weight. Did have another director call. That means something. If Peter makes a call on behalf of an actor, he knows that actor isn't going to stink things up. Especially with
1: that movie. It was a good movie. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And so we made an arrangement for Peter to come down to the Laugh Factory in Hollywood to see Jay do stand-up and then meet with him. And I think he shook his hand maybe before the show but really didn't meet him much. And Jay felt comfortable the Laugh Factory and Jamie Masada who owns the Laugh Factory has a really great vibe in there. If you've ever been to the Laugh Factory you know I would say if you look at the three comedy clubs in L.A. I've talked about this. You would say that maybe the comedy store is the darkness maybe the improv is sort of the middle between the light and the dark Laugh Factory is the light it's a really really special wonderful place and nothing normally happens there you go on stage, you kill it's a great place to have anybody come and this is an example of the darkness and the light and what can happen So Jay Moore goes on stage, starts doing a stand-up, and people start giving him a hard time.
1: One guy started heckling him.
0: One guy starts heckling him. And normally Jay's great with hecklers, and he was. And he threw a couple of lines at the guy, killed, got a round of applause on a few of them, and then something happened that I've only seen happen maybe three times in 25 or 30 years. Well, a guy threw
1: an ice cube at him.
0: A guy in the crowd was heckling, took an ice cube out of his drink, threw it at Jay, and it hit him in the face. Another thing I've never seen Jay do before in my life. Jay dropped the microphone, ran into the crowd, and literally lunged for the guy, and bouncers came in. It was this melee In the middle of the Laugh Factory, people are scrambling dates, drinks are flying everywhere. They're pulling the other guy out. You think the show is over. And this amazing thing happens where Jay, in the presence of mind of all the craziness and the fighting, crawls his way back to the stage. So he reaches back on stage and grabs the mic (laughs) and looks up at Peter and says, you had to come tonight among all the other nights and I think in his mind right then who Peter was with he thought to himself most artists would say it's over I fucked up this audition but as fate would have it Peter saw something in Jay something in his character something in the way it was that if a guy was up on stage and got hit by ice cream and just stood there and said guys could you come and throw that guy out I don't think Peter would have hired that guy Peter hired Jay because he mixed it up. He went to a dark place. But then, in the middle of the dark place, he went to the light place and the joke, which is the lane that Peter has always established himself in, or at least loved to establish himself in. And fortunately for Jay, he got the job, and Peter made a movie that is one of my favorite movies. It's amazing. And... It's just a lesson to everybody in certain ways that fate sometimes overcomes adversity or sometimes adversity in the worst possible moments bring you to the best possible moments. And Jay's relationship with Peter was strong. Jay ended up working with Christopher Walken. Jay ended up creating an impression of Christopher Walken that is iconic and he got to work with all his tremendous people including Dennis Leary and Brad Garrett and formed all these relationships and to me the lesson is clear if God forbid something happens in your career or your life where things don't go the way they should go make them go the way they should go anticipate how you need to be and what it will take to take you from that low point the high point and if you do that you're going to have the kind of career that Jay Moore and Peter O'Fallon have had over the years.
1: Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Cats and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water.
0: I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking.
1: Okay here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out about the
0: air? So just go to BarryKatz.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited about today. My guest Peter O'Fallon is here and without further ado I'm going to give him an introduction and hopefully he won't fall into a diabetic coma. Peter O'Fallon was born and raised in Colorado and received his degree in film studies from Colorado University at Boulder. He began his career more than two decades ago in commercials winning multiple Clio awards for his unique and innovative creative style. For those of you who don't know the Clio award is like the Emmy or the Oscar award for commercials. Tadeo O'Fallon is one of Hollywood's top television pilot directors with a success record of 13 out of 14 pilots going forward a series unprecedented. He has quickly become known as the indie director of American TV and is well known for directing the indie cult feature film Suicide King starring Christopher Walken and Dennis Leary where he broke talented artists like Johnny Galecki, Sean Patrick Flannery, Jeremy Sisto, brad garrett and jay moore he also co-wrote the mgm channel's indie film favorite a rumor of angels with vanessa redgrave and ray leota O'Fallon went on to direct an impressive stream of well-known pilots including the amazing american gothic for cbs that was then for abc eureka for sci-fi and blade for spike In addition, he directed and served as executive producer on the critically acclaimed series The Riches, starring Eddie Izzard and Minnie Driver. Later, O'Fallon co-created and directed FX's Legit, starring comedian Jim Jeffries. In total, O'Fallon directed 24 and co-wrote all 26 episodes of this FX series, which has been noted as one of the best-reviewed comedies this decade. He recently directed TNT's pilot, Agent X, starring Sharon Stone, and he produced a show for the run of the series. O'Fallon also served as both executive producer and director for the first episode of Lifetime's out-of-the-box series, Unreal, starring Constance Zimmer and Sherry Appleby. He is also universally known as having a unique identifiable ability to combine and turn the dark, raw side of life into heart and humor. Please welcome my guest today. I'm so excited, we're gonna have an amazing time. Let them know everybody. Peter O'Fallon. Thanks for having me. We're gonna talk about the things that, how you got started and your introduction into this world because people of all walks of life, all professions, they all wanna know how to get to the next level. And sometimes artists like yourself no matter how much of a sense of entitlement you might have, you don't feel like you're where you should be or where you could be or where you are. I don't care if you're Johnny Depp or if you're Joe Depp. You know, people just don't understand that artists have this thing inside them that drives them. Mm -hmm. But you've done some of the greatest things. You've worked with people, in my mind, that are just at another level of creative brilliance. I mean, I consider Eddie Izzard and Jim Jeffries, just the last few you've worked with to be. And I think any person in the business who knows comedy and people who are comedians who can act and do other things, there isn't anybody I know that isn't going to put those two guys on the genius list. Absolutely. And you are working with them. I'm also really excited because it's your first podcast ever. Yeah. And so a lot of the people who do this podcast, it's been their first podcast, and I hope you get to do many more after that. But what I'm going to do, which is kind of odd, I don't normally like to do this right away, but for you, I think it's really important. I'd like to go way, way back. Okay. And I'd like to start where you grew up, what your family was like, the neighborhood, what the socioeconomic dynamic was, and what was your first inspiration that happened to you that got you into this business?
1: Um, I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Uh, my father was an attorney and my mother was a, a school teacher. It was probably lower middle class due to my, uh, um, father's situation, which my father was an alcoholic. He quit drinking 40. He died a few years ago, but before he died, he'd been sober for 45 years. My father has a master's degree in engineering physics from Notre Dame, graduated second in his class and a doctor's degree in law. He grew up, uh, my grandfather uh, brought television to Colorado, had the first television station, had the second FM radio station. He had A, uh, a an amazing man, a second grade education. He had a, a school that would uh, for broadcasting. He got the license for the television station in 19... 19- I'm going to get this wrong, but I think 39 and they stopped all the things because of the war stopped all the television station broadcasting. And so, uh, and all these people, like, I can't remember all the people involved, like William Paley, all these incredible people came to my father, my grandfather's school for television. And then when the, as soon as the, they were able to put the, uh, whatever they call them licenses back out, uh, we, were, my grandfather was one of the first ones to get it. Denver, Colorado, one of the few channel two stations that is, uh, a, uh, which is lower in the broadcast spectrum, means has a log, longer wavelength, which is a better signal, is an independent station. It's one of the few in the whole country. And that's because when it all became, when they all became uh, available, nobody wanted to mess with my grandfather. I mean, even Bob Hope, all these huge guys that got all these huge things said, you know, we'll just we'll let Gino Fallon, was his name, go ahead and have it. Well, his, um, you know, so anyway, my my, and my grandfather was just an amazing visionary. He helped start Muzak. Actually, it was one of the first like couple. elevator music. Yeah, I mean, he well, he had this idea that why can't we just put a transmitter in in the speaker? That's what they used to do is put a little, I mean, a receiver. So he would broadcast his signal from his radio station into a speaker, and the speaker would get the thing. So you didn't have to wire it. So it just had a little radio in the speaker, and so it had music. And and he also helped BMI start BMI because uh, he was the because the musicians were upset that their elevator music was playing everywhere. And so they start a little group of people together. I mean, it just goes on and on. Was
0: your father's father an alcoholic?
1: No. Well, who who knows? I mean, you know, in, in, as my mother used to say in the Irish, it's, we, she, we were all raised as four of us. None of us have any drinking problems. Thank God. Probably because my mother, but as she was said that, uh, uh, you know, alcohol uh, with the Irish is like the Indians, you know, it's just there's just something about it. You know what I mean? And it's, just, it's somewhat true, but it's also there's a long history of that. But anyway, so my father. Of course, came- if
0: she were saying that today, she'd say it's just like the Native Americans. Exactly.
1: But that was, that was just, you know, when I was seven or eight years old or even younger <laughs> than that. But. But uh, so, it,
0: you know, my mother's all Irish, too, which is fascinating. So then how did you know your dad was an alcoholic? When did well, you first I, know?
1: Well, I didn't really know. I mean, my it was all, it was was. all I mean, my mother was really good about it. I mean, it turns out when we got older, we found out, you know, the, the, you know we used to, my, when my dad would come home, we, my mother, I remember going outside. We were all playing. And it was some of the greatest times in our lives was everybody outside. Well, it turns out my dad was inside. You know, he'd come home. And so my mom would just bring us all outside. She was incredibly, I mean, she was an amazing woman. And she... Uh, yeah, I don't know about force would be the wrong word but a very young and very early giant Irish Catholic very successful family in Colorado I mean, in Colorado you got to understand in the 50s the 40s and 50s was a very small town and uh, it was there was a they called it the Irish Mafia and there was the mayor was Irish the chief of police was Irish my dad was involved with this group called the Eagles Campaigns Club which was all the Newspaper editors, the people that ran the radio stations. I mean, it was a really wild crowd. I mean, it's a great movie out there somewhere. And I've been trying to get some information. Unfortunately, my father died, and a number of these people have died now. And so I need to go out and find it. But anyway. So
0: but you said that you grew up middle class or lower middle class, yet your dad's dad and your dad were two of the most successful people there. How is that possible?
1: Well, and then, so what happened? The quick backstory is my dad's mother died when he was 11 years old of breast cancer. There were five kids and my grandfather had all this money through the depression. And my, as my father says, he used to drive by in his car at 13 and 14 years old, his car by, by his friend's parents selling apples on the street. It, it messed with him. You know, he didn't, he never, he hated money in a, in a really odd way because he always felt like he was privileged. and over. I mean, my, my grandfather made him go to, uh, he, my dad was coming home to school. My dad was incredibly smart, uh, Graduated a year early uh, in the middle of the war, and he picked up my father. And instead of going right, they went left. My dad tells the story great. And they pull up to the train station, and my grandfather says, so "This is old school." Your grandfather said, "Your stuff's in the back. Pull it up. Here's your train ticket. Talk to Father Flattery or whatever. I don't remember the guy's name, but and he you are 'You're you're majoring in engin- engineering physics. This is what you're doing.' And my dad went and and went, graduated uh, uh, in engineering physics. Right at the time, graduate 1950, I think, but um, and you know, and had all these job offers because it, my grandfather had this ability to see kind of ahead, and uh, and my father, when he came up uh, to tell his grandfather that my grandfather that he had done so well, my all my grandfather said to him was, did you turn off the light on the way upstairs? Now, you guys, I mean, it sounds horrible now, but you got to understand this is a guy that was second grade education that, you know, basically made all this stuff through a really hard time. He just thought the only thing you got to do is raise him hard, you know, make sure it's tough. But anyway, so my grandfather, my father then decided to become an attorney. And one of the reasons he decided to become an attorney is because my grandfather hated lawyers. And I think it was, you know, one of those fuck you to your, your fathers, which most, most men do to their fathers at some point. Um, but he, uh, but so anyway, he, he so, after a while he came out, my grandfather was very successful my grandfather grandfather got very sick and then ended up dying there was some there was some money in the family left in the money and I think my father in the big picture looking back at it um decided that he had something he didn't want to do and so after my grandfather died, there was a bit of money i think the I think the money got burned through rather quickly, which is pretty normal in in that and then uh I can't remember the exact i think in nineteen sixty seven or sixty eight and again you got to remember giant. Large Irish Catholic, very successful family. Uh, my father was the first to quit drinking, and my mother and and I and I told said this at his at his uh, um, when he died in his eulogy. Well, actually, truthfully, is my mother changed everything. But with my fa- father, my father was the first one to quit drinking, and the whole family. And mainly because my mother said, "Look, I'm out of here if you don't," and uh, I'll I'll forget. I forget. I was 11 years old, and I, I didn't really know there was an issue, honestly, because my mother had done a good job with you know not seeing much of it. And uh, and then from that point on, my father kind of decided that he was going to become the lawyer for the poor, and so I was raised with this. You know, I mean, all all the guys at AA called him Yoda, you know. And he was just this astounding man that the uh, spent the rest of his life helping people that were that needed help. And uh, you know, I mean, to the point where I actually wrote a pilot about this. We did. For, we tried for ABC a few years ago. Called the Flannerys was what we called it. But anyway. He would go out of his way to help people. But I would say, Dad, the guy's a fucking scumbag. And, well, no, he'll be all right. He'd take these people, dust them off, make them better. Uh, and then they'd get better for a little while. Then they'd come back, they'd kick him in the nuts. He'd come back and pick him up out of the gutter, take him out, fix him again. And a lot of these guys end up becoming horribly successful. A number of them completely forgot about him, which irritated the shit out of me and my brother. But anyway so that was kind of the background and and it was an odd thing where you say darkness and light my dad was also the funniest man i've ever met in my life he died of als uh luke gehrig's disease
0: arterial lateral sclerosis thank you see it's not easy
1: and uh you know and uh, he got it late in life but um you know but again i think i've told you like one time i was at his house the last two years of his life i was back there every two weeks every week because when I wasn't working, I'd just go back and stay with him. It, and uh, one time he was sitting there choking, you know, they, their their body stopped moving. And he was in his wheelchair and he started choking. And I reached, you know, turning blue in the face. And I reached and pulled him down, you know, pulled the thing, got the thing out of his throat, and I was terrified. You know, I said, Dad, you know, are you all right? And he goes, and he looked up and says, well, my arms and legs don't work and I can't swallow. But that, that I'm pretty fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my dad. It, you know, no, no matter how dark it was there was there was always some light and his eulogy I wish I should have brought it but you know it was really funny that i wrote it was mainly all his jokes of these horrible things that had happened to him and that he was just you know what the hell can you do but he was uh he was great he was a really amazing man my mother was even more amazing when she died she died about a year ago and the truth was as in her eulogy i said yeah, the truth was actually she well so the thing the thing i was going to say about the irish catholic family is it Then he quit drinking at first. Marty can't hold his liquor. Oh, poor Marty. And and over the course of the next 40 years, you know, a large portion of our family, how'd you do it, Marty? And I I watched him change an entire family. Share a little bit
0: about how he told people he stopped because back then, I don't even know if Bill was around back then, friends of Bill.
1: Oh, Bill, that was really, that was all the beginning. I mean, it started in the, I think the forties, but um, you know, but yeah, but it wasn't cool either. My mom was a little like, like I was, in, I was in junior high school and I was out telling my dad's an alcoholic and my mom goes, please don't do that.
0: And I was like, why well, I'm proud of him. You know, like it's a lot different than it used to be. So there were AA meetings in Denver where he was and he was going to them. Oh yeah. at uh, 1311 York.
1: I, I can remember it like it was yesterday. Is this one place, you know, and it's, and, and that was, you know, it was, you know, again, alcohol has been a problem I think since the beginning of time. But uh, you know, Bill W. Fit, you know, helped figure it out, and he, my dad, became a you know a, an amazing
0: disciple of it. You probably went to a few meetings. You were an adult child mm-hmm. of alcoholic parents. Mm-hmm. You probably went to Al-Anon more than a few times.
1: Well, my mom begged me to, and I and I never really did till I got older. You know, because I think, like, ah, oh, mommy, you know, you, you you tend to ignore that. You know, and as you get older, you start to realize the wisdom. I mean, I'll give you one story that he told me that that uh, helped me not to drink too much. Um, I was in college. I'd, uh, you know, again, don't do this at home, children. Uh, I had gotten so drunk that I'd come plowing over mailboxes on the way home, driving dumb as shit. Uh, Walked in to my roommate, who it's another great story about my roommate, but my roommate, who's now a doctor, but uh, was upstairs. And I came in and I was, and I was mean as hell to him. And then I woke up the next morning and my girlfriend was there and I, I rolled over and she's like, you know, don't you talk to me. And I'm like, what? She just did. Oh, like you don't remember. I did not remember. I'd never blacked out in my life. I really didn't drink all the way through high school because of my dad. And uh, so, you know, and then I got a little concerned. And then I, you know, I went to my roommate. And I said, Oh, my God, I'm sorry. And then that happened to be that night I was watching Johnny Carson. And Johnny Carson says, Well, why did you not, why do you quit drinking? He said, Because I was a mean drunk. And, and he went into this whole story about being a mean drunk. So I finally called my father. It was the greatest thing about my father. And all my friends hated that he was, that I could talk to him so easily. And I called up and I said, to, hey, dad, uh, you know, I got a little drunk last night. And, uh, you know, I, I blacked out. And my typical, of my dad, he laughed really hard. He goes, was it fun? He goes, did you do anything stupid? I go, oh, yeah, a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> you know, and then he, and he laughed. He says, well, you know, you can do whatever you want. Uh, you know, whatever you think. He goes, but if I were you, I'd back up now. And I go, what do you mean? And he goes, well, moderation is the key to, key, to, key to life. And he goes, and I couldn't moderate. So if you could moderate, I would and so from that, pretty much from that day on, I'm kind of a two beer, a guy, you know, I have a couple of beers, but then I stop.
0: And But you have the gene.
1: I, well, according to my mother, yes, I don't think there's any question, but it's fascinating how much of it has changed. Because I mean, I think there is a gene, there's no question, but I think there's also circumstances because my father's father, five kids, no mother, him very wealthy, very tough, I don't think they have that other side, that loving side that the mothers, you know, tend to give you. So I think there's a lot to that, too, you know, just in hindsight. But, uh, but yeah, I think there's definitely, I mean, the Irish, but also, you know, there's a fascinating story about the Irish, too, is that, you know, they, uh, uh, there's such a correlation between the Irish until America uh, and to some extent the blacks in the United States. For millenniums, they were, for the Irish, English, they were just the, you know, people to be shit on. And one of the reasons, and, and if you look at the Irish bars, one of the reasons they have so many people, men in bars and women going out and yanking them out of the thing is because basically the men were de You know, and I think whenever you do that to men, you know what I mean though? The Irish, English pretty much, I mean, my dad used to say, if uh, his big joke was... Uh, if it weren't for booze and the English, the Irish would rule the world. And my dad says, "Well, we've we've pretty much taken care of the English now. We just got to figure out the booze." <laughs> but I, but I thought it was you know there's this, uh, i read a bunch of books and I thought it was really fascinating uh, story that until they were able to come to America and have a different life. I mean that's what my parents were so excited. I mean I don't forget because I'm not a lot older than you guys, but like when Kennedy got elected, it was like Barack Obama. You know they they were just oh my god an Irish. A cat, Irish Catholic, you know, because you know, for a long time we, I mean, Catholics were your sh- shitheads. You know, if you were in a prostitute, you're a Catholic. Oh, don't talk to them. My mother moved to it. Uh, my mother was the first Catholic woman in a neighborhood in Kansas City. Um, in the, as kids, and nobody talked to them because were, they were Catholic. You know, what I mean, like it's amazing to think that now. But but so anyway, uh, my that's as I've seen it. I think that the more that that you uh, know, is the wrong word, but the more they emasculate men. More trouble societies have.
0: That's my theory. For those of you who haven't been to an AA meeting, it's an amazing process and there's a formula to it. And normally the formula is there's somebody running the meeting and then there's normally at least two guest speakers. Sometimes it's like a comedy show there's three, there's an opener, One of a the middle, f- and a headliner. The
1: funniest things I've ever been to is AA meetings.
0: Yeah. Hilarious. They're incredibly funny but touching. But there's always a message in every story. And I would imagine that your dad was probably legendary around those parts for delivering the headliner speech every two or three months at a meeting. So tell our audience how your dad said he decided after all that time to quit drinking and his message to... A meeting.
1: Well, one of the fascinating things about my daddy is he's remarkably humble and very quiet about all this. So he kind of went out of his way not to talk. Whenever he, I mean, like I one of the reasons I spent two years with him when when you had ALS because I wanted to get into his soul. I wanted to try to, and I, honestly, I never really did um, uh, because I mean, not that he was avoiding, but he would say, "Why'd you quit drinking?" He goes, "Because because I was killing your mother." That's pretty much what he'd say, you know, not because. And it was no, there was no big message or thing. Now. You know, I, I only went to two meetings because he didn't really want me to go. You know, I went to two meetings in this in this, and that's where I think you said the dark and the light. One of the things that's fascinating about AA meetings is that they're really, really dark and really funny, and the light is is the redemption. The light is in that, I mean, and like it's odd that you see all this because the the, the concept that I think most of my stuff I've ever done is about redemption, and I think I've got that story about you know coming back around to where you were and and coming back to where you need to be. And, and you know, it's a fascinating thing to watch by, uh, uh, you know, to watch all this change over the, over the course of, of, of my generation and generations since.
0: I just feel this thing about you that it just feels like it had to come from somewhere, and now that you've talked about it, now it's very evident yeah. where it came from.
1: It's a fascinating way to put it because that probably, I think, I, actually, I know that's it. Because, again, my dad was so dark and light at the same time.
0: What was your first inspiration to get in this business then?
1: When I was in high school, I'd, uh, I'd, I was integrated. Um, I'd gone from all, all my neighborhood, which was kind of like a middle-class white neighborhood. This is in the 70s, into an uh, all-black high school in,
0: in inner city Colorado. So sort of like Denver. Boston court-ordered busing.
1: Yeah, it was, and I, and I got to say right now, and I'm a big liberal, I'll admit it right now, but it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And it was the greatest thing. My sister says, my younger sister says the same thing, is they just... They had quartered busing, and I and 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 first, well, I, I could go on and on with stories. Well, at first they they moved the they moved the inner city kids to our junior high school, and uh, and then everybody said, well, that's crazy. You should go both ways. So then they took us, and and I went to this East High School in 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 Denver, which was probably eighty percent minority, and again it was the most wonderful thing that were ever. Were the
0: teachers better there or worse? They were better. Um,
1: it was more open. It was artistic.
0: And that's when you started
1: dating black women. (laughs) No, no, but it was, I tried, (laughs) but I was a short Irish guy, (laughs) but uh, no, it, but it was, uh, you know, it was, it was not as, I mean, it's, it's probably the reason that I am who I am today too also, but it was not as regimented. It was not as people, you know, like I went to, I I mean, I I played football. I played football till ninth grade. Then I, uh, this, the high school I went to in, in, in color, in, Denver was Thomas Jefferson High School. It was the big powerhouse football. It's
0: kind of funny it was Thomas Jefferson High School. Well,
1: then I went to – and and so anyway, we – and then when we got – then when they integrated us, this buddy called me and says, hey, man, you want to play football? And I go, yeah. I go, why? Because they suck. And I thought, well, why not? So I played football at at East High School. We won one game against the other worst team in the league, seven to six. (laughs) And I could go on and on with stories about that. But anyway – so getting there and one of the things that again when you're talking about the teachers is that it was so much more open uh, ideas and so i took a class i I took a photography class and um i took a you know i don't know if you remember it's probably before your time but there was this cola called red baby
0: and i don't remember i think it was
1: out for like two years and i took a picture of a of of this broken can in, in the middle of a weed patch and uh and it won some sort of, you know, local little stupid award, you know, and, and the teacher was really encouraging. And I also, and there was also a a writing teacher there that would, that uh, really liked my writing. And I was like, you know, again, from coming from the school I went to, which is much more conformist and this also people just trying to push you for what you can actually do. So anyway, uh, and then the other thing was greatest thing in the world. There was, there was a thing called senior seminar, it's uh, I I was a wrestler also in, in high school and I knocked my front teeth out and I couldn't wrestle anymore and, and I was walking down the street walking down the hallway and this guy says you're gonna do seminar and I said what's that he goes you go to you go you get a semester off and you get straight A's I go I'm fucking in you know so and it was this thing great thing where we did forty days outward bound course in Mexico we did a, a music appreciation in downtown Chicago we went to blues blues clubs at 17 years old we went to a uh archaeology dig in in arizona uh we did river trips i mean it was just amazing back in 70s they gave us i drove the buses you know it's an 18 year old kid you know like it was just amazing it was an amazing experience and it really did you know again kind of changed changed my whole life i mean
0: but how does that segue into what you're doing
1: i think it was a freedom thing so then i went to boulder and I was at Boulder and, you know, Boulder was wild in the seventies. I mean, like really wild. And, uh, and I was fine wild. Well, it was just, you know, it, I mean, like we used to kid about our, our, I mean, again, I'm, I'm of a generation There was a generation it was the hippie generation before us. I'm kind of an old hippie, but I'm a younger hippie than my brothers and sisters. The, the, the brothers and sisters all did drugs to change the world. We did them because they were fun. You know what I mean? <laughs> in the seventies, you know, it was a different era. And so there's a tremendous amount of drugs, a tremendous amount of uh,
0: What was the drug of choice for most kids then?
1: Um LSD and 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 weed mainly. Okay. Cocaine came later. Anyway, so uh for 2 years I was pre-law, pre this, pre that, all this crap and and I and I I've, and I was paying for half of my college. Um you know again back then you could because our parents were taxed so highly that they had to pay for the schools, thank God. But yeah, you know, but it was like $1,100 a year. And come on, now it's like you know, thirty five thousand dollars a semester, but but anyway, so you could, and so uh, after about two years, I decided that I'd done. I had uh, all I was doing was getting high and partying, and uh, and I figured, what the fuck? I, I'm a big skier. I grew up, grew up skiing in Colorado, so I said, what the hell? I mean, let's. I'm gonna go skiing. I may as well just get high and ski. <laughs> so I moved up to uh, Breckenridge, Colorado, with my girlfriend. And uh, lived in a cabin at 11,300 feet with no running water, no electricity, and no rent.
0: And she was into that?
1: Uh, yeah, she was for a while. She ended up breaking my heart and leaving me for another guy.
0: Who had running water? <laughs> but, uh, Where did you guys bathe?
1: Well, we had, we, well, we bathed at my friend's apartment, who was the girl guy she ended up having a, a brief affair with. And we actually ended up going back with her for a I was with her for six years, but it was, a well, I mean, you got to understand too, this was the seven, the late seventies in Breckridge, Colorado, and she was a very beautiful woman. And, you know, you'd walk into a bar and you sit in a bar and, the, and it was about 10 to one men, you know, like right now, I think they still call Denver Mender. you know what I mean? And it's like 10 to one men though, at this ski and they're all, you know, hardcore macho ski dudes. And you walk into this bar and you go to the bathroom and you come back and there'd be five drinks in front of her. And, you know, they, and she was one of this kind of people, She was a great, great woman, but this open, nice person. And I was like, you know, can't you shut the door just a little bit?
0: You've been with some extraordinarily beautiful women. And like you said, you were a little guy and not big in stature. I don't think you thought of yourself as Brad Pitt. God, no. How did you get all these gorgeous women? To come up to a cabin with no running water.
1: You know, I don't know. I the, I, I mean, I, the, I don't know. I mean, I think it's again. I think it's my dad. I think it's funny. You know, what I mean, I, I, I don't know though. You know, it just I've always kind of been, you know, you know, like even that kind of stuff. It's like all my friends, are, what do you do? I go, Why are you living in a cabin? I go because I always want because it was cheap and it was. I, and it was kind of this, you know, like I still like Alaska wild and no, all that shit because I lived that life a little bit. I still have a, home, I have a big ranching. Well, not a big one. I have a ranch in Colorado and all that. and That I kind of live that life, but. the the thing that was so uh so i don't know i have no idea about that you'll have to ask them Uh, i've been very very fortunate so anyway so we lived at this incredible place and and i was up there for a couple uh i mean for about a year and a half and it was a three-mile cross-country ski in the winter in you drop you park the car and and ski in and ski out and again i i I, my parents my mother showed up and and left i didn't know this till later she left crying because she goes he's never coming home. I mean he's never going to go on to school, not coming home. He's never going to go on to school. he's I was a carpenter. I had this guy that was a, the the guy that was the uh, boss had this rule if it's more than ten inches or eight inches. He says, don't even come in we're we're skiing. And it happened to be a really crazy winter where it snowed ten days, ten inches every three days. So I worked two or three days a week. My girlfriend was a sold tickets at Copper Mountain. So I'd show up at Copper Mountain, I'd drop her off at work, and then she'd walk in, and she and I'd play this game where she says, "Oh, my ticket was broken," and she'd hand me a complimentary ticket, so I skied free. It was unbelievable, and you know, and I skied, and I would ski eight hours all day long every day, join on every chair. It was ridiculous, um, but it was really fun. And but then after at the end of the when the spring came, um, I decided that I wanted to have a little bit more conversation than dudes at all. <laughs> you know what i mean the snow was killer huh you know what i mean and i and i and i started so i honest to god i would walk up to this place with my dog i had this really great dog sugar magnolia i'm a deadhead i think as you all know and uh um and i walk up this place and sit and try to decide what the hell to do and there's this incredible uh peaks the, the peak one through nine in breckenridge and i'd watch the sunset try to figure out to do and i i went back to that idea of well i i got won that award in uh you know for the Thing, I'll take a filmmaking class. And I thought, well, my grandfather was in television. Maybe I'll try that. And my parents had I mean again, this is such a different thing than our parents nowadays. My parents had never talked. They were really great people, but they didn't weren't pushing me or anything. Growing up in Colorado, I spent a lot of time in the woods and we all of us spent a lot of time in the woods and skiing and stuff like that and just having fun. And uh I we went on a camping trip and we got snowed in. Three of us did. And and we had a ball, you know, we were in the tents and there was snow everywhere. And, you know, we had Jack Daniels and, you know, I mean, it was like, and so we just said, fuck, we're fine. We just stayed in our thing and laughed and joked and had a great time. And I came home had a little Datsun pickup truck and I came home three days late, you know, and I, you know, I was still this three days. And my mother was standing there with her hand on, hands on her hip and said to me, I was just ready to call the police. <laughs> three days. Now you got to understand that my mom was, pro- knowing my mom, she was freaking out. And I know my dad. My dad was, oh, he's all right. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> my dad would keep saying, oh, he's all right. He knows what he's doing. He's, he, he's, he's been up there. For now
0: years. your kid's gone three minutes and you're oh, like calling the police. Six seconds.
1: I, and I'm as bad as anybody. You know, like I, I, I'm already, my kids are old now. And I'm, oh, you're okay. you haven't talked to me in seven hours. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous.
0: Got it. So you take the film class. What happens? Well,
1: so I take a film class and one the, the first job was to uh, shoot a, a film in the camera where you basically don't do any editing. And so I decided that, you know, this has kind of been uh, uh, a strange thing in my life. I, I, I thought, well, okay, I'll go camping because I'd like, you know, like I said, I like to go camping. So I'll go camping and I'll, and I'll shoot a movie about camping. So I decided that I would shoot, there was a, there's a glacier, the Never Summer Mountains outside of Boulder. I shot of this glacier and a big shot of the glacier. And then I shot of the water dripping into the Boulder Creek. And then I follow then I shot Boulder Creek and then I went Boulder Creek into the and I, it's a I'll shorten shortness it's into the Colorado River
0: and then that philosophy of filmmaking in school you can't make a mistake
1: technically no you know but yeah but it was actually pretty i mean in my mind it was pretty easy but then and then it went in, in the, and then it went to the Colorado River and then we went camping and then i went camping on the in the grand canyon i did a shot of the grand canyon the shot of the colorado river the shot of all the river and the water and we went all the way i went all the way to mexico you know, two-week camping trip, mainly because I wanted to go camping. My kids, my buddies were all laughing. You're carrying 60 pounds of fucking gear, man. You're out of your mind. And, uh, and now you it,
0: could do it on your iPhone.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, back then you couldn't at all. It was an 8 millimeter back then, but it's still a lot of crap. And then it went out to the, uh, um, uh, and then it ended up to the actually the Sierra Cortez. And so I shot the whole thing. And then, and this is the honest to God truth. Uh, and I put Little Feet uh, uh, as a soundtrack back in the old days with cassettes. You just roll. Ready? Okay, go. And you hit the movie at the same time. And the movie, movie played, went through the whole thing, and then I turned my friend, who's still my, one of my best friends, and it, I was talking to him, and I was just yakking away, and, and my teacher's up there talking, and he was, was saying all these really wonderful things about the movie. And uh, and he goes, uh, so this is you know this is how you make a movie. This is how it's done. Let's Look at the story, how it's told. Look how you know blah 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 blah. And I was like yak 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 to my buddy, not even paying attention because I was always kind of a fuck up. And and then the guy goes, Peter, uh, uh, so you know, this is how you make a movie, Peter. Congratulations. And honestly, God, I turned and was like me, <laughs> you know. And and my buddy started laughing really hard. I go, really me. And he goes, yeah. He goes, yeah. and then I end up being a TA for the guy, teachers, he asked me to be a teacher's assistant. And mm-hmm. and then he ended up making this movie, Jerry Aronson, good guy. It actually was, you know, Trey and Parker, Trey and Matt came out of Boulder too. It was this short time. While, South Park. I don't know about short time, but there was this time where it was, there was 21 of us that graduated first. But anyway, so, and he made this documentary called A Divided Trail about an uh, occupation of Indian, of Indian place, Indian uh, base, i mean a military base that was indian land in chicago it was a really great movie with people shooting at him a very cool movie he had asked all these people to uh and then he asked john voigt to do the voiceover so
0: john voigt from deer hunter
1: yeah back then in the 70s too so john voigt did the voiceover it was a great thing and i helped come help cut it and edit and and be involved with it and then and he got an academy award nomination and for me it was like shit this works, if I you know what I mean, and I thought if he can do it, I can do it. You know what I mean? So, and it was just a, a, an odd set of circumstances. I got a story. Just to go back to the drinking story. Please, uh, the guy Darwin Bushman, very close friend of mine, who's a, a psychopharmacologist in, in New York City. Uh, I my son, I was trying to talk to him about drinking, and I told him this story. You know, and I said, and, I, and he goes, "Well, whatever happened to that guy?" I go, "Darwin." And he goes, "Yeah, and I come on, it's an unusual name." And so I, he goes, I don't know. He goes, you know, you should call him and apologize. And I thought, well, you know, I, I should probably follow this through, you know, be a good, good dad. So I called the guy up and I found him that not an easy, not a hard name to say. I knew he was going to be a doctor. It's really, really bright guy. And, uh, and so anyway, he calls up, we talked for a minute, he goes, I don't even remember that. So he goes well, thanks, you know, I appreciate it. Hangs up the phone, he calls me back like two days later and he's laughing really hard. He goes, I got to be honest with you, he goes, I never thought you'd do shit. And I go, <laughs> like, what, he goes, I was looking at your IMDB page. It's a fucking tome, man. He goes, honest to God, I thought you would be fucking some stupid, stupid guy. And I thought I would too. I mean, I used to always, I used to always laugh with my parents. I was like 50 and a quarter percent uh, ambitious and point three quarters percent you know stupid hippie that wants to live in the mountains
0: but what was the moment that happened that turned you from a laissez-faire lazy high drug using carousing womanizer kind of guy into a guy who was a hard-working dedicated person with a single-minded goal of getting to the next level in this career what was the first thing that happened
1: well there were a couple things but i mean but the biggest thing was all my friends my roommates in college were upset with me because i knew what i wanted to do suddenly as soon as i started getting a film i would sit there and i mean i love to be i love the fact that i could I mean, that's back in the old days with film steambecks and all that kind of stuff and uh you know and i just love i could i'd work 10 or 12 hours you know on it and i would have it a ball now the difference is you know we go out and smoke a joint in between you know what I mean? And, and have a six-pack of beer. You know, that's also kind of like that. I also love the fact, that, as you can see, I'm dressed right now in shorts and terrible shirt and a bad thing. I always love that about, you know, I thought, I don't have to dress up. I don't have to do, you know, I mean, it kind of all worked for me. And so that was probably the beginning of it is I realized that I lost myself. You know what I mean? That, that whenever I would get into the editing room or whatever I'm doing or shooting or whatever, I would just lose you know, I'd lose stress. I would, it's very zen for me. It's like, you know, it's a
0: really enjoyable thing. So what was your first big break in the business that let you know that you were never going to do anything else again? Well, the birth this? of
1: my daughter is what really motivated me to, because, you know what, it's when you suddenly have a child and I was working freelance and I had these different businesses and I had these different ideas and my, my daughter, God bless her, came along and I saw this little face and I said, fuck, I'm responsible for somebody. I got to get my shit together. Uh, you know i mean, so much was lucky i mean another st- stupid but kind of funny story that cabin i lived out in the mountains i'm driving up my little convertible volkswagen my girlfriend's convertible volkswagen actually which i still own um, but we we're, we're, i'm driving up there and i just we used to do these i did these power slides cuz it was really fun driving up this road on, on the ice and there's this guy hitchhiking so I picked this guy up, he's Billy Moe, uh, it was very, very close friend of mine, turned out to be very close friend of mine, and we get in the car, he goes, hey man, you want to come over and have a beer? I said, sure, so have a beer, so I ended up meeting with him, we stay. I end up talking to him a long time. turns out he's a multi-millionaire from California, from LA here, had made a lot of money in real estate, and had moved up to the mountains.
0: But he's hitchhiking.
1: He's hitchhiking, well, because he's a hippie, you know I mean, it's like he, he kind of, he decided, at, he's probably 40 at the time. And Decided that okay, fuck it, I'm gonna go in it. So I ended up working on his house, you know, doing carpentry stuff for him. and I kept really close to him. Years later, after I got out of school, I was working freelance and stuff, and I had this business idea. And I was working for this company that had that was called. A, they did syndicated television commercials for radio stations, and this is again probably way before you guys' time. But there used to be this really beautiful woman that would, you know, she would mouth all these words of all the radio stations. At the end, like I remember in Colorado, it was KBPI rocks the rockies and she so, so it was just just and they go really close into her mouth and they pull back out and then my job was to customize the end of the thing to say you know whatever town you're in so i got this really wild idea that i would make syndicated tv commercials for radio stations and so i went to this guy and, and again god bless him to this day he's completely responsible for my career i said I'm, i got this idea what do you think he goes come up with a business plan i'm like the fuck is that and so he sent me to a uh he goes, go to the Small Business Administration. Again, I was amazed all this is available. I went down, I met with these two older guys that were in their 70s. And they sat down, and this is all before computers, you know. And they gave, you get these pieces of paper, and you fill out all this stuff. And and I figured if I borrowed any, I was going to have them borrow, give me money. If I give you this much money, I need to make this much money. And you figure out the whole two years, I, it was like three years, I think, and how to pay them back and your expenses at the whole nine yards. And god bless him he co-signed the loan so i borrowed forty thousand dollars i mean it's insane when i look back at it it's just completely insane
0: and you borrowed it for what exactly
1: oh well for these syndicated television commercials called the beat and i decided because i'd worked around all these people um in the industry i mean in the in in, uh, radio that how this kind of works and how it all works and so i decided that there was this market for this. this is the 80s. You got to remember the 80s, you know, the beat. It was like everybody bad dress, bad hair. You know, I mean, so the, I think it's the one decade that will never come back. Neon <laughs> pants, parachute pants. I mean, it was just, but anyway, but, it, but there was this certain thing, you know, you know, the, um, i trying to think of all the bands back there, ABC, you know, and all these bands. And it was this kind of punky, funky thing, you know, so anyway, and it was all about neon and bright colors. So I had this idea to make 10, uh, 10 second TV commercials that could be combined into 30 seconds or 10 second and whatever and sell them. And they were all called the beat. It was eat to the beat, meet to the beat, greet to the beat. And I thought it was just genius. Anyway, so I, I ended up making these TV commercials, um, wrote, directed, produced, built the sets, painted the sets, and met all these great friends. that ended up getting very close to my guys with my partner. I had this guy that was, uh, oh, I got to back it up just a little bit. Before this, I was working. Uh, on, on a set, this is another guy that's completely responsible. her name is arch Brian. And he had this, uh, uh company in Colorado called Rocky mountain city support. And I was in there, I became what they call slash. I would do sound, uh, you know, grips, whatever, you name it. I would do it. And they call me slash cause oftentimes I do all the jobs together. And so one time, um, I came into the office and I used to clean the cables and put the stuff, the truck, there was somebody else cleaning the cables. And I, oh, why can I be giving this guy free work for years, you know, and I was mad as, mad as hell. I mean, we called him the Architola inhumane <laughs> because he used to just give us shit. First job, middle of nowhere in Colorado, Breckridge, Colorado. I'm sitting at holding an 18K and 40 mile an hour winds, probably 20 below zero in a pair of tennis shoes. And Arch goes walking by me in the full on you know, gear, the whole nine rounds. He looks at my shoe and goes, what the fuck are you doing? And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, what the, f- where the fuck are you from? I'm like, Denver? You know? and he, goes, uh, he goes, why the fuck don't you know to wear fucking right shoes? You're gonna fucking die out here. What the fuck is wrong with you? This is why I call him, the Art- And he goes, get the fuck out there. So there's like 30 people sitting in the center, the whole crew sitting there. I mean, it was horrifying for me, but, it, but he, he always called it building character. So he he goes running in. I come walking in the room and it turns everybody in the room and goes, look at this dumb motherfucker. Look at his fucking shoes and his fucking jacket. What the fuck is wrong with him? Everybody laughs. You know what I mean? He goes, my God, he goes, you're going to fucking, I'm going to pull you out. You would have fucking died, dude. <laughs> you know, so, so, and that's the guy I ended up working for. Years later, about a year and a half later, I'm working all these jobs for him. I do all these small commercials and we oh, oh God, it goes on and on. But, um, and so we, uh, and he had this guy that was, uh, cleaning the cables on the, on the, on the truck. And I was all mad at him. Going, I know, am going you know, I've been killing for you what are you doing? And the guy stood up and he starts thumping on my chest. I mean, as hard as he can. And he says
0: with his finger, with his finger.
1: And he goes, you need to shut the fuck up. because I'm tired of hearing about your goddamn ideas. Get the fuck out of here. You're fired. And I go, what? He goes, I hear your ideas. Your ideas are good. And I watch too many people like you end up cleaning cables for the life. You're going to knock up some fucking chick. You're going to buy a goddamn house. You're going to be stuck in this fucking business cleaning cables the rest of your fucking life. Get the fuck out and go fucking do your ideas. This was before I borrowed this money to do this thing. So I was like, really? He goes, yes. You have really good ideas. Go do them. Get the fuck out of here. I'm not, you can't be a fucking grip. And I was like, seriously? He goes, yeah, so... Going back to the story, I, I get all this whole thing put together and I walk into his office. And we, we become really close friends. I walk up to him and he always wanted to be a DP, the director of photography. And he was a gaffer and I owned all these trucks. So I come into his office one night and I start thumping mean, thump on his chest go, why don't you get the fuck out of here give me all your equipment for fucking free and become a fucking DP, asshole. And he goes, what? I go, yeah, I want you to be my DP. So he ended up being the, my DP for the, and I did for about 10 or 12 years in commercials. We made these commercials.
0: Uh, what was the first commercial that you did that won an award? Where you said to yourself, "Fuck it, I can really do this."
1: Uh, uh. Well, it actually took a while. I mean, it, it was before that. I kind of thought I could do. It. I was a cocky little fucky, you know, like like everybody is. You know, when you're young. I mean, we were, we. Were, uh, this is 24 years old. I I bought after with this commercials that I made. I bought an excursion fare ticket. I don't think they sell them anymore. It was seven. I remember, I remember exactly how much it was seven hundred eighty-seven bucks back in the early or middle eighties, and you could fly twenty-one cities in twenty-one days as long as you didn't come home, because they didn't want people to commute. So I set up all these business, all these pitches, uh, to sell this, and I walk in with these giant cassette, you know, old day, old school cassette and TV. The arch guy gave me all this stuff to carry, you know, carrying like 70 pounds of shit into all these meetings. Um, and I flew around the country selling, trying to sell these shows. First place I went to, coming back to my dad, was Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I'm in, um, by a terrible, in a terrible hotel in the in Holiday Inn. I walked in, I nudged all this shit in, I put down, I showed them the, the commercials, and the guy just ripped me a new asshole. I mean, completely ripped me into my asshole. He says, what the fuck? Why would you do this? This is crazy. This is stupid. You're never going to sell these. I'm, you know, I'm $25,000 in debt, 24 years old, freaking the fuck out. You know what I mean? So I go home that night and I call my dad. And, and this is a true story. I have a six-pack of beer next to me on the bed, right? And uh, I call up my dad and he goes, yeah, I was worried about this. And I go, and he goes, you need a sales manager. And I go, he goes, you need somebody. He goes, well, call me because you're going to get hammered. It's sales. You know, there people are gonna well, you know what I mean. You're gonna get killed. You need somebody to talk to. So call me. This is okay, he goes, and second of all, don't drink. So next to the I take my hand off the beer. This is honest true story. I take my hand off the booth. This is here it is. This is from the eulogy. I took my hand off the beer and I said, I go, Oh, come on, Dad. And I goes, I go, well, he goes, you got any other thoughts? He goes, he goes, You're in a hotel, right? Yeah, goes, There's a Bible there. And I went, Oh God, Dad, come on. Seriously? You know, I go, yeah. He goes, well, that's all I got. And this is my dad. This is my joke of my dad. Goes, that's my that's all I got. hung the phone up. My dad never said goodbye. you would make me crazy. You'd sit there on the phone. Dad? Dad? And he always say, that's all I got. And he hung the phone. So I'm sitting there a minute. And this is honestly got true, a true story. Uh, so I, I take the I grabbed the Gideon's Bible. I mean, it was beer, Bible, beer, Bible. <laughs> you know, back and forth, back and forth. I grabbed the Bible. I opened the Bible. And I'd honest, this is the truth, honest to God truth. Right? I opened it up. And I read, and I just said, okay, I'm going to randomly read something. And it said, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own, own understandings and always acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And I shut the Bible and I was like, oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> and again, and I, shit, i might have to believe this crap. You know what I mean? Again, I was raised Irish Catholic, you know, at least, you know like it's in your soul. You, I mean, it's like you can't, it's kind of like being raised Jewish. You know, you can't be un-Catholic. But anyway, so uh so we i ran around sold just enough i went to four uh uh you know tw- i don't remember 18 cities the next city went a little better and i think i sold two or three times i can't remember we actually sold tried to sell k rock out here in the early 80s when it, that was really it was really hip this is before the internet this was before pandora all that crap and one of the things one of the great side stories is i was sitting with the travel agent it was over thanksgiving the last couple of things over thanksgiving and i go work and i go she says you can't go home I go. Where can I go? She goes. You can go anywhere we go. I goes. Well, where do you go? She goes. Well, we go to. You know, we go to Jamaica. There was a dead show in Jamaica. It was actually this astounding music festival called the World Music Festival. The Police, Black Uhuru, Grateful Dead, H Boys. I can't remember. It just went on and on, like you know, 50 bands. And I go. I can go to Jamaica. And Then that's a whole other story. Crazy, wild story. But so I went to Jamaica, and the Dead came on at 4:30 a.m. This when I really realize i mean i i'd seen him for years already but they came at 4 a.m. there's probably a hundred people still awake I, I, maybe i'm exaggerating but i don't think so because you know it was, it was exhausted it was everything in jamaica's late you know it's soon come man soon come <laughs> it's supposed to start at 8 30 i think it started at 10 30 or 11 you know and so that all these bands so anyway the dead come on as the sun's rising basically and they and uh they, they everybody's asleep so i walk up you stand and you know me to you to jerry garcia I look over and the guys, uh who's supposed to watch the backstage is out cold, and so I walk back. I sit backstage, sit next to you and me with Jerry Garcia playing guitar. Said, How you doing, man? I go, I'm good. You know, I said, yeah, good. Have you enjoyed the show? Said, yeah, loving it. And walk back out, sat, watch the show. And they, and again, the thing I loved about the Dead, they played four and a half hours anyway, even though the, even there was nobody. there. I mean, even though no one cared. Half the police, people woke up. So anyway, I'm getting way off the subject. So that worked. We did a bunch of commercials. My uncle gave me my next commercial, and then I had a reel. What you need is something to show. I had 10 commercials as a reel. I barely paid the, the payments uh, you know, in the thing in, on, the, on the loan, but enough just to barely make the payments and to make a living. And again, it was much easier to live back then, it seemed. But, um, and, then I did, uh, uh, and then I started doing commercials. My uncle gave me a commercial for a, a charity, and we did one of those and I had another piece of reel. Then I did a couple more radio station commercials because they thought, this guy knows how to do radio station commercials. And then uh, and I had a reel and uh, I decided I needed partners. And uh, Don Race is a really close friend of mine and, and Blair Stribley. Uh, I said, do you guys want to get into this? And they said, sure. So they, they joined me up and Blair sent my reel to his friend of his, who was his art teacher in high school, who is now a commercial rep in Chicago. And the guy sent us an email and said, you guys could make a million dollars here. So we said, okay. So we rented a, a place in Chicago on Wacker Drive that was an apartment that they lived in and an office, kind of like you know about as you know three, three two bedrooms, three bedrooms. I don't remember, but and so they lived in the apartment and had the office, and they just cleaned it all up and be the office, and they started to sell, and we got extremely lucky with the, uh, well actually there was all these all that, like uh who's the, who's a guy in NCIS, uh really good looking guy. Um, I can't remember the guy's name but we did that commercial we started to do a couple more commercials and um, and then uh, I, you know, I was kind of cocky when I was young younger about this kind of stuff so we turned down a lot of commercials which worked even though we didn't have any money we kept saying no we don't want to do that We do that." so one of the third or fourth commercials I did was Michael Jordan's very first TV commercial and the star of the commercial was Freddie Savage
0: Fred Savage who now is a director who was the young actor on The Wonder Years he was years. probably
1: five or six years old and it was for Chicagoland Chevy dealers. Anybody that's ever uh, grew up in Chicago seems to remember these commercials. It's Michael Jordan shooting a basketball. You know, it was all very cool in the '80s. But anyway, that kind of put us on the map.
0: And did that win the Clio award?
1: No, the, first, the one that won the Clio was the uh, was Prell. It was by a bunch of guys. Really, that funny, was a shampoo, right? Yeah, really funny TV commercial. Where a guy f- throws a, another famous comedian's in it but, uh, before he was known. But guy throws his fourth ball, and the guy walks out and goes. Uh, um, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to pull you out. He goes, I'm going to bring in, I can't remember the guy's name though. He goes, I'm going bring in cats. He's got those nice highlights. And then it goes, i <laughs> Men don't really talk about the hair. They just want to clean. We did a number of stuff. We did.
0: And you uh, started making significant money. And how did you get yourself to the point where you made the transition from television commercials to film and television, which is a very difficult thing to do.
1: Well, the goal was always, you know, to be do movies like everybody. You know, everybody want to make, want to make a movie, want to make movies. You don't realize until you do it that there's only about. Well, I mean, the first time I made a movie, there was. You know, I, I went to the DGA breakfast, and there's and there's two hundred and twenty people there.
0: The Directors Guild of America, which actually has their building, it's a beautiful building on Sunset Boulevard, across from the Laugh Factory.
1: And it's astounding to think there's that many. I mean, but when you're young, you think, "Oh, there'll be millions. There's hardly, you I mean, it's it's really a pipe dream for everybody to think you could make movies. But anyway, so uh, I had had done that, and then, uh, and we've been pretty successful. And uh, and this was, you know, Michael Bay was my was contemporary. I was doing comedy, but he was. There's a whole bunch of us that were kind of, and all of a sudden it came became. Well, I got lucky. Became hot to be a commercial director, and uh, in hindsight, I actually, I'm glad. I, glad it turned out, but. Um, I got a call, I got a call from an agent out here in LA, a guy named Paul Kilmanson, who's the manager now. And he says, hey, I, I could, I, I think I could get you work in LA. And I'm like, yeah, hey, go ahead, give it a shot. And he goes, what do you want to do? At that time, 30 something had just come out. And I had 30 something, I don't know, you younger guys don't know this, but television was bad till that point. It was all Dukes of Hazard and <laughs> You know, and, and, and Hill Street Blues was kind of the first of it, but the 30 something came around and I watched, I'll never forget it, how, why I say there was a show about the menorah and the Christmas tree and it was, she was Christian, he was Jewish and it was about, and, and I cried at the end of the, at the end of the thing and I, you know, I was like, you know, I cheered up. I was like, oh, that's so sweet. And I, I'd never done that on television. So uh, he goes, what do you want to do? And I says, I'd like to, you know, I thought I'll, I'll do step by step, you know, I'll go commercials, TV, movies. In hindsight it probably was a dumb idea. I probably could have jumped right to movies because sometimes they pick movies I can't believe who they pick for movies. But anyway, that's another story. But anyway, so uh, uh I and he sent my reel to uh Ed Marshall. And it was, again, one of the greatest experience in the world, both of them. I've been, mean, again, lucky. I was lucky as hell. Ed Marshall was? Ed Zwick and Marshall Herskovitz. Got it. Okay. And, uh, and where were they at the time? They were at 30-something at ABC. Got it. Okay. And they With were- Peter go-
0: Horton, the guy who looked like me.
1: Yeah. And they were, yes, yeah, she does. And they were going uh, out of their way to not hire regular TV commercials. I mean, TV directors. And mainly because at that time, it was all about the schedule. That's why, you know, it was all just, you know, set up a shot, crash the car, move on. And they, and so anyway, I made this, so I, I did, and, and then uh, they gave me, they said, yeah, we, uh, I had this reel that had uh, commercials for uh, McDonald's, you know, like it was Olympic commercials where you brings tears to your eyes and then really funny commercials. I was mainly known for comedy. But then, but I like to have them both. And in commercials, they go, "What do you want to do, son? You want to do comedy?" You go know, back and forth. They're always mad at me because I had this reel. Finally, somebody got it. Ed and Marshall called me up, and they said, "God, you're the first guy we have ever seen that made us laugh and cry in the same reel." It goes back to yours That's you amazing. Go. you're really well done here. Very. And uh, so uh, they they said, uh, um, and I said, uh, okay. And they said, would you like to do a, do a show? So I said, sure. You know, so I came out, and uh, <laughs> the stories go on. I came out, I, I, I flew out for a reading of the show, the reading show, and it turns out it was the very first gay episode ever done. Uh, two guys in bed together, I can't remember the name of the actor. Very
0: first gay episode on television.
1: Ever on network television, ever, ever, ever. And you know, and, and for me, and I was a bit of a shock for me even too, uh, you know, I'm a very liberal guy, but if this was 1988 or 9 I think, and I was like, going, oh God, I'm going to do the of course, I get the one everybody's going to shoot me for. And and, and and so we, we read the whole thing, and, and I and I, I didn't even know that. So they ham- we met. And I was supposed to shadow. I shadowed one of the other directors. They, they go, Peter, you want the script early? I said, yeah. So I get back in the plane. I'm in the plane, honest to God, and I read the and I'm reading the script. And it goes on and and I, and I can't remember. I think it's Michael and Peter. I can't remember who the name of the characters were. And he says, and he reaches over and kisses him. Can I have a drink, please?
0: <laughs> and so I had a couple drinks, and this honest to God truth to you. You had alcoholic drinks during the day of your first No, no, shoot. no. This
1: was flying back. I, I know I'd just gotten the script, okay, and I was flying back because you come out here, and you're supposed to uh, have to shadow them and see how got it all it. works. And then I was flying back to Colorado. I was commuting from Colorado at that time all over the, all all over the world. I was staying in Denver because of my, my wife and child. And uh, so, and so, and I, and honest to God, I get picked up at the airport by, actually, I wrote an article about this for an advertising magazine, but um, I got picked up at the airport by my mother and my aunt, who's a nun. And, uh, you know, again, this is Irish Catholic. We have nuns and priests and monsignors and all that in my family. And I hop in the car and I just read this script and they turn to me and says, so what's the show about? (laughs) So anyway, so we end up, I end up doing the show. Um, It ended up being, and I, and Marshall and Ed, God bless him. I couldn't believe it. it was, you know, it was graduate school, postgraduate school for me because they kind of let me do whatever I want. And but they were very critical. And then you'd watch dailies with them uh, ever with a whole cast and crew, which doesn't happen, I don't think, anymore. And you'd watch dailies and they would criticize. Um I ended up doing a really uh really did that one and then uh and and on the set, we're on the set, this is another great thing. There was a big uh love scene between the two guys all the abc executives showed up everybody was wigged out everybody was nervous and ed walks onto the set and goes what the fuck is going on here and he goes, what? He goes well we just want to make sure that it's going to go right there. he goes no you guys need to get out of here now this is the first experience with television he goes you guys need to leave or i'm quitting and i was like wow i love this man i love because the heat was on me was you know i'm i don't know 29 years old you know i think or yeah, I think twenty nine or thirty. So know. he
0: threw them out. He threw him away. He goes, the kid's got enough fucking heat on him. Will you leave him alone? He threw the network out of the
1: out because I mean, which is you, they don't need to be there because all it does is screw things up and make everybody nervous and make them more nervous. You're not going to help. If anything, you're going to hurt, and everybody's going to you know pull back on the pitches. So, and I was like, ah, man, I love this guy. I finished the I finished the edit. It was a little bit weird and unusual, which is what they wanted. They asked me to. Uh, um then they said, hey, they looked at the cut and they loved it. I mean, it was such a great experience. And they go, do you want to finish it? Which doesn't happen in television. I, I thought it did. So they go, it's your movie. Go finish it. Again, they, television producers, writers, showrunners, this is the best way to do it. I know you guys don't want to do this, but it's really the best way to do it if you can. And so I went, I did the music. I did the whole nine yards. I mixed the thing. I finished it. And it was my little movie. It was like such a
0: killer experience. But they oversaw your work.
1: Yeah. Well, they, yeah, but they were, I mean, it's, it's like, it's kind of the way that my, my theory has always been since then. I, at least I try to be is, is it's, it's like sheep herding or book editing. It's not every little moment. It's like, yeah, you know, we thought this would be funnier. We thought this would be better. FX does a really good job at that too. But, uh, um, so I did that. And then, uh, and then uh, Scott Wynot, God bless him, who was one of the producers, uh, Northern Exposure came along. And my agent called me up and, said, and at the time, nobody wanted to do the show. They thought it was weird as shit. And she sent it to me and goes, ah, you're weird. I thought you might like this. And I read it and loved it. And I so I did the first couple of Northern Exposures after the pilot. And the pilot was just him and and uh, Joel sitting in a boat. Him and the astronaut guy sitting in a boat and you convinced him to go. And then I did this first and second. And 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 the, at the time, CBS hated the show. It was uh, uh, J- Josh Brandon and Josh Fulton, josh brandon uh, falsey james falsey it's been years um uh, we're really hot off of um a couple of their shows they had done uh saint elsewhere and something else and they owed them an eight episode commitment so they said go ahead and do this we did it non-union unbelievably in in seattle for almost nothing very very difficult shoot very difficult there's million stories of that I won't get into that, but they, uh, um, and they ended up, uh, and so while we were doing it, they thought that the show was going to be so bad. We, they said, do whatever you want. You know, they would pretty much say, yeah, go ahead. You want to do that, do that. You want to cast that, cast that. They put it on in August, which was the, they called it the death. They used to be the death. Again, this is way before all everything that happens now, but back in then August was, everybody was, nobody watched TV. They thought, and it worked. So that worked. And then Things just started moving from there. And, you know, and so it's been it's been fun as hell.
0: Talk about how Suicide Kings happened. Well, I, you were doing television pilots and things. Yeah, I was and doing then, pilots and commercials. And then and you th- hadn't really done a film.
1: Yeah, I made a couple huge mistakes. Uh, one of them was ABC. ABC called me in after the 30 something and they loved it. And I think it was b- the bad agent team, too. But they go, hey, ABC wants to talk to you. I had no idea why. So I just thought, you know, oh, okay. So I walk in, I sit down in this meeting, and they loved the the 30 somethings that I had done. And they go, So what do you got? And I had nothing. I could have had something, but I had no idea that's what I was supposed to do. I thought I was just coming in to say, hey, nice to meet you, you did a great job, pat me on the back or something. But instead, I, you know, so it was a huge missed opportunity that again, a good agent, well, you and know, I have talked about this a lot. A good agent would have said, Hey man, prepare something, get yourself ready, because you know, these guys really want to see you. And so anyway, uh um, so then I'd done a, I was kind of staying in commercials because commercials is, is prostitution. Basically, they pay you a phenomenal amount of money to lay down and bend over and, and you know, I mean, they do. I mean, it's tremendous, but it's a terribly, I'm always amazed that they hire commercial directors to do um, movies or whatever. I mean, even that they hired me, honestly, because ultimately it's such a committee decision thing. You know, that it's so difficult to do anything really great. I mean, unless you're Joe Pitka or a couple of the really top guys.
0: Joe Pitka, for those of you who don't know, to me, it's amazing that this man still works in our world. because Joe Pitka is somebody who just screams and yells at his staff in front of everybody, in front of the cast. He looks like he's got long, long hair. He's hunched over. Like six foot five. And he is the, you talk about the dark and the light. When you have him on his good side, he's a loving man. But when he gets on the set, he is dehumanizing.
1: I believe that's all an act, though.
0: These days that happens, you're normally sued and fired, yet people keep hiring him. And this goes full circle. Because Jay Moore did the Super Bowl campaign as the agent for Diet Pepsi. Right. And Joe Pitka was the director. And the first time on the set that he screamed in front of everybody, Jay did something that very few people wouldn't do and jeopardize his job. He went right up to Joe in the middle of everybody and said, hey, Chewbacca, (laughs) shut the fuck up and leave my crew alone. (laughs) They're my crew as well as yours, and don't treat anybody like that ever again. Right. And I couldn't believe that he did that, but there was no more outbursts.
1: Well, that also, I mean, you also realize that people push as far as they can. I, I find that with actors. Sometimes, you know, they, 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 they're going crazy. You go crazy right back on them. They respect you. But, uh, but I do think that the, it, it, Joe Pick is part of that deal is when you realize in the commercial world, it intimidates the shit out of the client. And the client, I mean, these people work seven or eight months on thirty seconds. We just did these commercials. Good friends, and we did these huge commercials for uh, Miller Beer in Texas, and they were very funny. Uh, and we kind of, uh, um, we just made them. Uh, you know, it was John Love was playing the liar character back when back when he was really big on Saturday Night Live, and like he walk into a a bar, uh, a two step bar, and and the guy goes, uh, walks in, what do you have? And you know, John goes, ah. I'll have whatever he's having. He says, and give it to me on the house. And the guy goes, uh, "Why would I give it to you on the house?" And he turns back and looks at Dancer. He goes, "Because I'm a an dancer." <laughs> and she goes, "Oh, really? You're a dancer?" He goes, "Yeah, I'm so good. I only uh, I only use one step, you know." So they're really funny, and there were five or six of them. We spent, I think, it was two and a half million dollars. And and I was really excited about it and think, oh, this is gonna change my career once again. This typical up and down of this industry. Um, and then I get a call from a really, he was a really good friend of mine The creative director had his own company. He really done a great job. And he goes, oh, the people loved him. He goes, we played them in front of all the beer distributors in Texas. And, uh, and he goes, we th- I thought it was a home run. He goes, then I saw this one good old boy in the back stand up. says, I think he looks like a New York queer. Bam. Two and a half million dollars dead. Because, you know, John, you know, you know, you know John is, you know, you know what I mean? That's just his character. But, you know, they didn't like it. But again, that's the, the going back to advertising. That's the astounding thing about
0: advertising. So how did you... Go and get this first film, Suicide Kings. How did it happen?
1: Yeah, well, I'd done a bunch of stuff. I was offered the pilot for Party of Five like a dumb shit. Again, stupid thing. I had a commercial. Again, bad agency. I had a commercial commitment. Uh, A good agent would have said, yeah, just go do it because they have been very loyal to me and I was getting paid fortune. And I said, well, I can't really do these dates. And a good agent would have just said, yeah, just go do it. I'll just drag out the negotiations a week. You learn all this when you get older. It's you know, just, I'll just, I'll just make, just be a pain in the ass. Go do it real quick and come back. Uh, these guys were great Chris Kaiser and Amy Lippman. They were great. I came and did the first episode of them. Mainly what I've done, if I've not done pilots, I've done the first couple episodes because sometimes they want to fix them. I was known as a fixer. So I came into, and I did Party Five, and up being a producer director on Party Five, I had a great time with that one. And then, uh, um, They were looking for a a director, and the American Gothic came in as a pilot. And it was very—this is probably the beginning of good television, even better television.
0: Now, am I wrong, or did Sean Cassidy create that show? Sean Cassidy, everybody. If you don't know who Sean Cassidy was, he was a— Teen Idol. Teen Idol. The Do Run Run. Great guy. Look it up. Here's a guy who never created a television show in his life. Was as mainstream and as the light as humanly possible, mm-hmm. yet he was able to create a show that was dark, edgy, unique, special—one of the most original shows that has ever been on television. But unfortunately, got canceled. But
1: and Sam Ramey was one of the producers, and uh, Sam was great about you know, and it was and it was. I mean, now everybody thought it was. Everybody thought I was blowing it all the way through it. They they sent a they sent a poor woman. I don't know if she's still in the industry to come out and supposedly watch me. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and she buried herself and it's all these great stories about the, saying that the the show would never cut. Luckily, again, I got very lucky. I had Pietro Scalia, who's Academy award winning editor that was a friend of Sam's, uh, you know, cut JFK, cut, uh, gladiator. I mean, fuck guy is fucking brilliant. I mean, as brilliant as you could be, I mean, could make, you know, I mean, uh, uh, and, and while I was out there shooting, I was shooting, I was on the back of this um, uh, camera car and I was trying to avoid all the stress because it was very stressful. Everybody was convinced I was blowing it, which is, again, fascinating thing about this industry. Is uh, I think a joke I told you the other day is it, it's like in first class with the actors, they're walking up and saying, would you like some more caviar? Are you comfortable? Would you like a pillow and a blanket? And then they go up to the pilot. The guy explodes, land on a plane and they're just kicking the shit out of him. You better <laughs> land the fucking plane, right? <laughs> That's this industry, you know? And if you don't, you're fucking gone and I'm going <laughs> to, anyway, so there's all this heat on me and, uh, and I'm so I'm shooting all this weird stuff and, and, and Pietro goes, what are you doing? He goes, what do you mean? He goes, you're doing this stop and start with the cameras back in film days. And I go, yeah, I guess, I don't know. I was just driving by. I thought it'd be cool. He goes, well, he goes, do me a favor. Keep doing that. And he goes, why? He goes, nah, I got this working. I, I get this working out. So he ended up using all this great stuff. Again, the stories go on too long. But um, and, and he ended up making the thing. I mean, honestly, the credit goes hugely to him. And, uh, and then years later, I run into him at uh, in a, I think it was a restaurant. And I go, and a Gladiator had just come out. And you remember Gladiator, right? Remember the hand at the beginning? Yes. And the hand at the end. Yes. And I walked up and I go, that's fucking you, Pietro. And he goes, you have no idea what that means to me. I go, dude, that was you. That's how what you do, because that's what you do. You get this weird shit that you're shooting, weird little thing. I said, ah, oh, goes, what was it? he? Goes, oh, uh, Ridley was shooting five cameras, and it was before the take, and he and he just brushed his hand. He just, you know, was just walking by. That was not scripted, you know. That and that's a brilliant editor. That's a guy that has just this astounding ability. Um. So anyway, I got lucky with Pietro. We ended up doing the show. Everybody thought it was going to be a mess. A complete mess, and it turns out that uh, Scheinberg, who used to run Cid Scheinberg. Cid Scheinberg used to run Universal, after it came out, after they did it, and again, uh, I mean, it was to the point where I would get in the car and call Pietro, and says, they, they all say I'm fucking this up, am I? And he goes, no, no, ignore him, you're doing great, this is great. Again, it's such an amazing thing for you podcasters to hear. They're killing me. I mean, they're killing me. I mean, they walked up to the set, and and I'll uh, I'll still I'll give a shout out to her Tanya Lopez from the from CBS at the time. The limo pulls up. I think, ah, fuck. And and everybody goes, Oh, Peter's out of here. They're firing him. And so uh, they walk up and they go, Hey, Peter, we we just want to talk to you about what you're doing with Gary Cole, who was again brilliant, incredibly great guy. Uh, He goes, You're playing Gary Cole like your best friend. And she even used her hands up like this, like the devil. And she goes, he's the devil. And you're playing him like he's the nice guy. I said, well, I don't know. You know, you guys. I'm telling you, what's scary to me is the guy against that dark and light thing. It's amazing how it all works. But uh, um, he goes, the scary thing to me is a guy that's really good to you and stabs you in the fucking back. That's much scary to me. I said, but you know, it's your bet. It's your bat, ball, and bases. You're paying me a lot of money for my opinion. I'm going to give you my opinion, and that's my opinion. Is you're dead wrong. And they go, why don't you say what you really mean? I says, you're dead wrong. And and I remember if forget, Sean says and and she goes Tanya did the Pontius pilot washed her hands and I just thought oh my God we're so dead so I thought my career was over they cut the show Sean God bless him calls me at eleven thirty at night and says and he goes I just want you here and holds the phone out he goes standing ovation for my family eleven forty five Tanya Lopez calls up and what I actually said to Tanya is you're dead fucking wrong and then and I, and I think this is the last executive that I've ever ever been able to do this I think. But she called me back up uh, at like 11.45 at night after seeing the show. She goes, Peter, yeah, it's Tanya Lopez. like yeah, says, you were dead fucking right. But I was like, wow. It was, yeah. so, and I, and I, it was such an, a great experience. Incredible. So Wayne then, uh, who's, who's... Wayne Rice. Wayne Rice uh, called me up, and this is a true story. And he says, hey, I loved American Gothic. It's one of the best pilots I've ever seen. And I said, well, I think so I appreciate it. What are you, and he handed me a script. And he goes, I want you to do this movie. And I go... What do you mean you want me to do this movie? He goes, I, I want you to do this movie. And I said, that's it? No, no audition? No, no nothing? And he says, yep. He goes, I'll do it. He goes, you don't even want to read it? go, no, fuck it. I don't have to dance for anybody. I don't care. We'll figure it out. We'll make it work.
0: You agreed to the movie, your without first movie without reading it. the script.
1: Well, because it was such, a, it was such great faith in, my, in, in not only my ability, but the idea that it's like you know, I mean, I, uh, but
0: anyone could come you know, up with you and say they have faith in your ability. But this was
1: this was back then, you know. It's like I wanted to make movies, and and the idea was that that you know he told me a blur that it was Christopher. So we're trying to get Christopher Walken. Okay, I'm in. You know, I mean, I, I you know you got one of the most
0: jiggest guys in the world.
1: You know, and yeah, and and then I read it and it was great. You know, I mean, uh, you know, so but now about, did you
0: have to convince Christopher yourself? Did you have to meet with him?
1: Yeah, we met with him. We talked. We had to go to the hoop. I mean, there's all this stuff in independent filmmaking. We didn't have the money. We had the money, but didn't have the money. We had the money. You don't get the money until Chris commits. You you don't have Chris. So we said we have Chris. We didn't have Chris. We had Chris. We didn't have Chris. So we, and and, uh, Maury Eisman, who's the other, who's producers and trying to work, who's trying to work with me right now. Again, says, fuck it. We're just going to go the hoop. So we said we had the money. We said we had Chris and we said we had the money and it all fell together in like the last minute. And then boom, it all worked and we started and and we shot it here in LA and shot uh, 30 days and and it was the most, probably the most fun I've ever had. Uh, one of the reasons Legit came out, it oddly came out of it, because, in an odd way, because it was five guys and Chris. And uh, being five guys and Chris, it was, it was like a pickup basketball game. Uh, first day we show up, Chris shows up, uh, he goes, will you tape me to the chair? Because you know, he was taped to the chair the whole time. So I said, uh, yeah, yeah, sure, Chris. So he's taped to the chair. All the other five actors, including Jay, show up, you know, they're young, they're in their 20s, they're probably hung over, you know, smoking butts, you know, being cool. And they grabs fresh scripts off the table and they sit like they're going to sit. And we're, we're sitting there and Chris goes, and we're like three lines into the rehearsal. And I had 10 days of rehearsal at a, this big mansion I found on on Adams. Actually, I found it because we it mean, was we,
0: in the projects or something. Yeah, it was
1: way in South central and I found it because we had to find some place we could just live. And we were driving by in this big giant for rent sign. It was this beautiful place that somebody had re- remodeled. It was a huge man, huge. I mean. And we, we were able to put everything in there. We could, we had the crew in there. We, everything was just great. It was a really good situation. But so Chris is sitting at the feet, Fagan at the, at the feet. That's what it is. The kids are like Fagin at, at his feet and they're sitting there and Chris shows up and, and we're really honestly in like the fourth or fifth line And Chris goes, would you mind if I change and to the or something just ridiculously stupid like that? You know, and I was like, Chris, fuck, you know, you're, you're Chris Walken dude, deer hunter, you know, whatever you want to do, you can do, you know what I mean? But the thing that happened is it turned into a, a, you know, it's like all these kids looked and says, fuck, this guy's here to play. And I mean, and it was, the guy had done so much homework. It's ridiculous. And, you know, and here he's, he's Chris Walken and you know, everybody
0: else. Was I confused. remember going to the set and seeing a script of his off on a table. Yeah. There wasn't a clean place on a page. He had no. written everywhere. And
1: he was, I mean, and like the editor's joke was, which one of Chris's eight personalities do you want me to cut in today? Because that's what Chris would do. And I loved him because, you know, you've seen the way I work. I, I like to keep rolling. I like to try stuff. I like to add stuff as we're shooting. I mean, I, I, it's, it's the deadhead in me. I want to jam you know, I want to go, let's go fast, let's move quickly and let's just see what we come up with. And Chris would do it one take really scary and then he would do one take really fucking funny and then he'd do one take insane, you know what I mean? And then it ended up being incredible for the movie because you could make him really scary. I mean, it's, he sat in a chair for fucking, 30, you know, 45 minutes I mean, of the movie. So he's got to be, you know, it's got to be this incredibly, you know, powerful and dynamic performance. But anyway, it was it was, it was a ball. Uh, but again, talk about nightmares for the Hollywood industry. The movie came, <laughs> this is just, uh, this is such a heartbreaking, it was so heartbreaking for me. And looking back, it is, wasn't, but I mean, looking back, it's okay. But So we finished the film. It was It was called uh, Live Entertainment back then. And these guys were, we, I didn't know this, but they were a bit, a little bit on their last legs. And they decided that Suicide Kings was going to be their their savior. They had this incredibly great campaign they'd come up with that said uh, their plan was perfect, they weren't. And they had uh, the Suicide King, which is the card with the guy with the sword in it. They had all this campaign they're gonna have all over this, all over the country. It was just the Suicide King and the date, you know. And it was gonna be fifteen million dollars in prints and advertising, fifteen thousand, fifteen hundred prints. And you know, for me as a director, it was a home fucking run, you know. And I thought, oh my god, my career. And I was hot as you could be at the, at that moment for that moment. Because
0: they had a four million dollar movie and they could spend the money because it was under twenty million dollars and they, well, then yeah. and also
1: they, and it was a pretty good movie and it was it was smart of them. We tested it; it tested extremely well, um, uh, you know, extremely well. And uh, you know, and, and and it was and, and for a moment there, and everybody was throwing scripts at me. My agents were throwing scripts at me. Oh my God, you're going to be a hero, you know. I thought I thought it was my head got big. I'll be honest, um, and and it was stupid to me too in hindsight. But um, and, and then four days before six thousand trailers went out um they sold the company and uh, irony of ironies they sold it to mitt romney and Bain capital and so all of a sudden all bets were off i mean it was really the, I, I was within an i mean i truly saw the brass ring i i was getting i was getting movie offers and all and it all stopped typical of hollywood it all stopped and it was like my fault and i said what do you mean what did i i didn't do anything so then artists and entertainment and this guy i won't use his name but this guy called me up uh who who'd taken over the company and and by that time I was pretty pretty dark um, and he was he's nice, a nice guy but he I don't blame him he just came in and they, and they always want to rebrand and 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 again for all you new people in Hollywood it's one of the horrible things out there is regime changes because and I, again they're stupid they shot themselves in the foot they could have made a lot of money with this movie but they decided not to because they didn't want the old regime to look bad and you know the new regime look at it. anyway so we, we go through this whole thing we end up going to to. Uh, um, the uh, Toronto International Film Festival opened with him almost famous. The reviews were amazing. And I thought, oh, man, my head got bigger.
0: Cameron Crowe.
1: Yeah, my, my, head, my head got bigger. And I'm thinking, oh, God, they, they're not going to kill this thing. It's too good. <laughs> Dumbass. Of course they're going to kill it. Because it was made for $5 million. Easy to kill. You know what I mean? If I made, that's why Jim Cameron always says get him at least $100 million into it. Then they can't kill it. But anyway, so. Long story short, movie came out, did actually did fairly well. And we were supposed to meet, I can't remember the number. They said 3765 and a, uh, uh, per screen. I don't remember the exact number, but it, I remember watching it and we made like 3753. I'm exaggerating. Maybe it was a couple hundred underneath where they said they were going to put more money into it. Right. So, you know, and they ended up, so the movie, you know, and closed, didn't open and close, they actually did fairly well in the theaters. Still didn't make, anyway, so, and it's all about pushing. Later on in the year, um, I'm looking at the top grossing films for whatever year that was, I think it was 2000. And you know, and the big deal is, is you know, one of the top indie films. Well, it all depends if the if the studio's pushing. If they're not pushing, it doesn't matter. We And I don't remember what it is now, but I think we were like fourth or fifth that if any other studio says, well, it was one of the top 10 grossing independent films, I think we made, you know, I don't remember what it was, five or six million dollars, seven million dollars, not a lot, but enough that we, if you look, it's like the first one's, you know, a hundred million, or I don't know what it is, sixty million, then fifty million, then four, and then one, and nine hundred thousand. So I get a call uh, six months later from a guy that says, uh, uh, again, heartbreaking phone call, and he goes, uh, "Hey, Peter, I just want to tell you we left fifty million dollars on the table." You know, and I have the phone. I actually pull it up and go, What? Are you, why are you telling me? Are you trying, you are know, trying to bum me. I goes, "No, I want to tell you that." He goes, "Watch DVD sales." He goes, "It'll, it'll kill." And he goes, so will you come to Vegas and do a little speech like I'm doing right now and talk about thing? They did a great job. The DVD people did a great job. Well, you know, and again, uh, I've not heard, uh, they won't tell us, but I know that the, it does about, I think it did $70 million in DVD sales. I didn't know how big it was until my daughter went to college. Um, I, she went to college. I came to, you know, she went to University of Colorado and I showed up at Boulder and there's about 10 dudes there going, oh man, will you sign my DVD? And I was like, fuck, man, they all they go, no, we have 10, I have 10 movies. You're one of them. And this is my daughter's 30. You know, it's that generation. And now, and again, what you said earlier, I think on, on the opening, I, I think everyone's seen this film now because it runs every two weeks. And the fascinating thing is they still claim it hasn't made any money. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, that's always the way of the Forrest Gump account. Oh you. yeah, exactly. What I want to do is do a little six degrees of separation, sure. if you don't mind. Sure. Eddie Izzard.
1: Genius. Absolutely, I mean, and one and one of the greatest, one of the greatest, most grounded guys I know. Uh, a great example of stardom coming late. Uh, I think that's because you know uh, there's a, there's a theory about stardom that it, you only mature to the level that you become famous, and and I think that's you know not not to blame them. I think that's just normal thing because when everybody starts kissing your ass when you're twelve or ten. I mean, Freddie Savage is a great example. He'd never he never like he's a really good guy still, but um, is but Eddie is just an amazing, amazing. I've seen him probably 15 times, uh, you know, mainly be, well, not only because of the show, but also because I like, And know, many times time I call him. And I've watched, and again, it's that deadhead thing. I've watched him jam and he's got his show and I'll watch three of his shows and each show's different. And you see him just start to head off in a different direction, unwritten. It's all kind of the top of his head. I was at watching him try to do a show at uh, just a little tiny, like three or 400 seat theater. And he was working on his act. One time, and he had a, the radio mic, and he walked out. and there's trashy lingerie's right there on the corner. Can't remember the name of it, but and and Eddie's in the middle of the show, and just and uh, for some reason, he just decided to walk out, and walked out of the theater. and Everybody, all of us, are sitting there, and he starts interviewing people, in trashy lingerie, you know. And the microphone worked, and it was it was fall down, fucking funny. And and you know, and I am sure you've seen his show a number of times. Uh, I, was, I was astounded by his 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 his
0: brain. Oh, uh, me too. Sharon Stone,
1: uh, one of my favorite people. Smart as shit, smart as a whip. I mean, she's supposed to be Mensa member, or something like that. But I, you know, again, when I first, uh, you always get a little intimidated, worried that you're going to be, you know, thing. And she ended up being, uh, I mean, I, I, I really, really, I adore her. Um, really straight, really a straight shooter. No bullshit, no crap. Shows up prepared, knows what she's going to do. No, uh, surprising, no diva shit. You know, none of that stuff. I mean, occasionally she'd be strong about what she wants. But she was generally right. She was really great.
0: Ray Liotta.
1: Great guy. He was, uh, he was kind of a linchpin in uh, Rumor of Angels, a movie that I wrote that uh, we made up in Nova Scotia. Again, a great movie story. took me 13 years to make it. By the time I finished, I, I was imagining, I think it was about a nickel an hour. And then uh, another heartbreaking Hollywood story. We show up. Uh, the movie g- c- goes. Uh, we decided to test it. They test it in uh, Santa Monica. It was MGM mm-hmm. distributed. It was this bizarre little deal. But again, and it's amazing how hard you push this stuff. Filmmakers push this stuff up up the mountain. But we and and again, regime changed. Three weeks before, MGM had killed killed all their people. Brand new group of people. They did the the uh, uh, testing in. Uh, Uh, Santa Monica, and I thought, oh, fuck, I'm going to be dead. It's all film students. They're all going to hate the movie. It's a sweet little movie about a kid who gets messages from the beyond, you know, and it's really beautiful. Roy Wagner shot it. Spectacularly beautiful movie. We just went for it. But anyway, so we're screening the movie. The movie finishes very stressful. The testing is very stressful for a director. And I'm one of the few directors that like testing because I can actually fix things. Uh, I've learned this from all the pilots I've done they don't like it here. They don't like it here. I know what I can do to fix it. And I shoot a lot. So anyway, we're watching the the film. The film comes out and they do the, the, uh, how many people would recommend this friend in 19 of 20 raise their hand. And I think, oh my God, 13 years. It's fucking worth it. And it was just, and I, and, I, and then the, the second answer is I don't know, kind of, you know, like what it would st- not strongly or would recommend this. The other guy's hand. So it's 20 out of 20. You know, I'm thinking, Jesus, I cannot believe this worked. And then they do the test, and I can't remember the number. The test was like 86, and you know, which is huge. And the movie's kind of like all over the place. And like, this goes back to your dark night. It's really, really well done. But um, the uh he so we finished the whole movie. and The people they asked, they have all these comments, and for a moment it was like, you know, uh uh, uh writer director masturbation. Because the guy was the guy that, oh, it's a movie, it's about life, it's happy, it's sad, it's funny, it's dark, it's this, it's that, it's and all these things, you know, like all these different things, and I'm just going, oh my God, Jesus! They get it. It's so fucking great. This is so great. They're gonna love this movie. They're gonna really put it out. This is gonna be great. All this, all this effort's been so worth it. <laughs> oh, such we, we, it's like it's like drug. It's like heroin almost. Like you, you just believe and believe. And then they, uh, and then so, and again, and it couldn't have been better. That the people leave, I stand up and I turn around to all the marketing guys and everybody. And I go, hey guys, what do you think? And MGM was kind of in the toilet at that point. Right? Well, maybe it still is, but at that time it was, it was not doing too well. But the guy and the guy goes, you heard him. How the fuck am I going to sell this? And it's like going from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the ocean in fucking 10 minutes <laughs> in 10 seconds. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I wrote it and directed and produced it. What do you want me to do? Sell it to? He goes, I don't know. How the hell do I sell it? And I go, I don't know. You know, like, uh, I don't know, like as a good movie. And he goes, why don't you tell me how to do that? And I go, that's not my job he goes, let me explain how this works we have these portals we got these holes genre movie you know comedy da, 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 you know whenever
0: right? anyone says let me explain how this works yeah. run
1: oh, yeah and when he, and he talks about it, and i get it you know it's to some extent and and he goes through the whole thing and he goes uh, you know and and we go through the whole thing and and at the end the guy goes uh, he goes it doesn't fit you heard the guy it's funny it's happy it's sad it's cool it's like life how the fuck do you sell life you know, I go, I go, I don't like driving Miss Daisy. And then the guy kind of goes nutty at I me. Mean, he goes, Drive McDay. Everybody says it made so much money. It cost a billion dollars. And I go, goes, there's about 900 movies that are like driving Miss Daisy that didn't fucking work. You know, I'm like, oh God. So they, they do the movie. The movie comes out, and I don't remember, 200 screens or something just absurd. <laughs> this is so heartbreaking. I decide to go to the movie. I decide, I always go to these movies whenever I do a movie or whatever. I try to go and I go alone because you don't want to be around me. Because if it's not going well, I, you know I I go dark and I get quiet and I and I won't don't want to talk. So uh, I go to the Beverly Hills Cinema and I walk up. It's River Angels. I'm going, oh cool, there we go. And I walk into the guy, and uh, and I say to the guy, uh, uh, what uh, do you have? Uh, uh, so I look around. I'm looking for a poster, and I go, hey. And so I walk up to the tenant guy and I go, hey man, uh, where's the poster, he goes? Who are you? I go, I, I'm involved with the movie. He goes, hold on, let me get my manager. So the manager comes up and goes, hey, man, can I help you? And I go, yeah, where's the poster for Rumor Angels? He goes, who are you? He goes, I wrote, I go, I wrote and directed and produced the movie. He goes, ah, fuck, dude, I'm so sorry. They didn't send one. Oh. Can you fucking believe that? They didn't even send a goddamn poster. Luckily, I walked into the theater. For some fucking reason, it was packed. I don't know why. It's probably everybody's friends. from it, it was in the movie. I don't know. It was the opening weekend. And people love the movie. I I, it's the same with Suicide Kings. I'd sit outside the movie theater, and they don't know who I am, and I listen to them as they walk out. They go, "God, that was a great movie." So anyway, another one of these just stories of heartbreak. Ed Zwick, he did the movie with Gwyneth Paltrow, Shakespeare in Love, and he told me a story about that. He said they developed uh, that her and uh, I mean he and Marshall. Marshall's a big Anglophile. Developed that movie forever. Right, and somehow it got screwed up when it went from Weinstein to Universal. ended up in the ended up winning the Academy Award. I don't know if you remember this, but then I was watching Academy Awards, yes. and there were fifteen guys on stage. This is when they stopped using, decided there was too many things. It they went through all the producers, and then they came up to Ed, and just as Ed was going to come up, somebody from Weinstein Company pulled Harvey in front of in front of Ed in the microphone, and and I saw so I watched Ed drop the microphone like. You know what I mean? And then you just realize, God, they fuck everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, you realize, I get, you got to carry a word. God bless him, And he's a great, he's,
0: but they're good guys. You know, you just realize that it's your best cocaine story. Oh,
1: I would, I was very lucky that I didn't really like cocaine. I'm wound up enough. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I remember when I, I mean, I was, this is way early because it hit Boulder early, like in their seventies. And I had friends that were flying to Bolivia and all that stupid stuff people did back then. And uh, i remember, I never forget sitting in, I think it was 79 or 80, I think it was 80. And I was sitting in a party in the back in the days and everybody was in a bathroom or a bedroom doing blow. So I, I did not do it because I just, you know, I was like, I was a weed smoker. and I didn't want to, I don't want to get up. I want to get slower. And, uh, and I'm sitting there reading this magazine and then I flip and it was this big article in, in Time Magazine that says, they found that cocaine is not addictive. And I'm sitting there thinking, all my friends are horribly fucked up on this drug everybody's in the room and I'm the only one that doesn't do it because I can't, I used to sit there and get, get all, wound. you know, when I, when I did a little bit, I'd get all wound up and I, for about 10 minutes, I'd feel great. Then I'd grab my teeth and be paranoid out of my mind. And I'm going, I just spent a hundred dollars to feel like shit. So I was never a big fan.
0: Vanessa Redgrave.
1: Amazing woman. Uh, amazing actress was a really brave performance. A difficult person.
0: As a director, there's situations that happen that are very, very difficult at times. I remember working on My Best Friend's Girl, and, and Howie Deutsch was trying to get Kate Hudson to cry in a scene. And she said, I don't, I don't think it calls for the character to cry here, and I don't want to cry. And there was a battle about whether she was going to cry or not or whatever. And, of course, she won the battle because she was making $11 million. And
1: he's making 500 That's right. But yeah, exactly. And the studio doesn't give a shit about him.
0: And Vanessa Redgrave, obviously. <laughs> no, won I mean, the m- she
1: got the movie made and she was you – know, and, 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 and she's really, really good in the movie. I mean, extremely good. It was just a difficult battle. It was a bit of a battle because she uh, – uh, as I've mentioned throughout this podcast – you know, I, I'm a jam guy and actually uh, John Langrath and I have had this discussion a lot. John's much more of a uh, of a by the book guy, you know, what doing and I'm a kind of guy that let's walk in and see what happens. And, you know, because I, I and mainly I learned that because I'd walk in all prepared and everything good. And the actor, just like you said, would say, I don't want to walk out the door now. And when you've got it all prepared and they don't want to walk out the door, you can spend an hour and a half just trying to get them to walk out the door or you can say, OK, what do you want to do? and And they say well i I want to stay, you know, I want to sit in the chair and say this whole speech, and if you can figure it out in your mind in five or six minutes again i I've never had a hundred billion dollars to make a movie where you can shut things down and wait you know, so you sit there and you, and you kind of figure out in your head, okay, if she stays in I can get her out of the chair and move her to the next into the next scene, or I'll just cut and figure out a way to handle it. It's a much better way to go um so Vanessa was a very properly trained actress, and she liked to be very precise. And wanted me to tell her exactly what to do and how to do it and where to do it. And so in general, I, it's not the way I like to work. I like to show up and kind of feel the scene and try to and and change and improvise a little bit. So we butted heads a lot with that all the way through
0: Dennis Leary.
1: Uh great guy, great story. We were sitting there uh driving on Suicide Kings, and one of the funniest bit is, is an ad lib bit in his things about the boots. We're driving around in the boots and I was kidding him all the time about, well, well, at first with the boots, he walks out the boots, he goes, Peter, let me tell you about acting. Acting's all about comfort. He goes, I'm not going to wear these boots. And I said, Dennis, let me tell you about uh, directing. Directing's all about power. You're wearing the fucking boots. <laughs> and he goes, oh, I got a fucking Mick. Do I? I go, yeah, you got another fucking Mick right back at you. But he said, so we had this great little, you know, Mick relationship, I think. Uh, any, but anyway, and so he goes, I'll make you a deal. I won't, uh, uh, whenever you see the boots, I'll wear them so just for fun i put started every shot of the boots even when he's in the <laughs> even when he's in the car so he's had to wear them so we're, we're driving we're getting we're dragging around on this in this car you know at downtown la uh doing uh, toe shots and i start on the boots and i come off and dennis again another brilliant guy and uh turns to the guy next to me like lou lombardi who's it was really a great straight man for him turns and goes you see these boots you know, and he goes, yeah, he goes, uh, he goes, what do you think they're made of? He goes, I know." He goes, they're shark boots. He goes, and Den- and, and uh, Lou gave him the greatest turnoff ever. He says, so you're wearing fish boots like that. <laughs> and Dennis went fucking off on him. And it was the greatest ad lib still in the movie. He goes, fish boots? You didn't even fucking know what fish boots are. Don't even talk about fucking socks. He's <laughs> you know, in the movie. And it's absolutely hilarious. I click on the walkie-talkie with Dennis. With Dennis. I go, oh, Dennis, finally, you're fucking funny.
0: <laughs> and hit, he goes,
1: oh, shut the fuck up and roll. And then we were off and running. But he's, he's a good guy, really. And I get a
0: very, very, very good. Jim Jeffries.
1: Uh, Jim's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, what else can I say? You know, he's as, he's as good as they come. I think, you know, his, his ability to, uh, he has an amazing ability to take, well, like he's, he's now doing this gun control thing. And uh you know, which would be scary for almost everybody else in the world, but he can walk this wire uh unbelievably well, and I mean, I was with him when he c- kind of came up with it. We were sitting in I, I own a bar, and I own a part of a bar in Melrose, and we were sitting in the bar one day, and Jim turns to me, and we're just sitting there talking and and Jim goes, "You know what they should for gun this is after they just killed the kids, I think I don't remember what it is. some guy had done something crazy, and he goes, uh, you, you know we should we should have insurance for guns." And I go, it should be insurance like cars. If you got a gun, you got to have insurance. If you hurt somebody or kill somebody, your insurance has got to pay for it. And then he he goes, and then it'll be, it'll be expensive. If you, if you got a gun that kills a lot of people, then if an ak forty seven, and I go, that's a fucking brilliant idea. So we're, as we're talking, he goes, well, like in Australia. And this guy starts talking to him over on the other side of the bar and it gets fucking crazy. Within ten minutes, ah, oh, my second amendment right in fuck your second amendment rights, you don't know say you don't even know what the fucking. what's the first amendment asshole, you know what I mean, And then they start going off on it, and Jim just starts going, you don't even know what fucking the amendments are. next thing you know it's a month later he's got he's got this killer, which is in the show. it's it's the last you know in the last season he' just it's just abs- the second season. He has this killer argument about in in an Australia. They, uh, they had this thing. They all decided that uh, enough people at uh, 36 people were killed by this crazy guy. And the next day, all the politicians sat down together and says, you know, we should probably, it's a great one, of great jokes. We should probably ban guns. And he goes, and the Australians all kind of thought for a moment and they said, sounds reasonable. He goes, in America, you kill 21 six-year-olds and you say, maybe we should do background checks and... And America goes, don't touch my fucking guns. <laughs> and Jim has this whole theory that it's uh it's like heroin. It's like a heroin addict. And it kind of is oddly, you know, if like you, you go, you go to a heroin, addict, I'm going to take your heroin. Don't take my fucking heroin. You know, it's not like, well, let's talk about this. Maybe guns are stupid. It's like, don't touch my fucking gun. So anyway, <laughs> brave, brave guy. Well, you, something you said about legitimately, uh, I, I don't know if you mentioned it in, in the opening, but, um, legit, I'm obviously incredibly proud of it. One of the things that really made my day is it, uh, Two people I heard from in the middle of legit, they said, I heard on two different interviews. Uh, one was uh, Carl Reiner, uh, and the other was, you're just talking about all in the family, Norman Lear. Uh, interviews, They said, what are you liking right now? Both of them said, well, I really like this show legit. And it, it made my day. I mean, it was like, I even went to John Landgraf at the time. I said, I'm done.
0: John Landgraf, the president of FX. I said,
1: I'm done. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, I'm done. This is, these are two, two fu- these are, fu-. like you said, guys I really like. Guys that kind of, that really, I mean, incredible guys. They both said that this is their favorite show right now. Well, I When mean, it was out.
0: Well, I mean, the show, I mean, you got. I love, I love that. I mean, what happens in the show? You got a guy with muscular dystrophy. Right. I mean, it's just.
1: That came from my dad, going back to that idea. That's well. It came from Jim's comedy. He had the, it was a small little bit, really funny bit about uh, taking a guy to a hooker, and then uh, as he as, as he went over, uh, dealing with my dad throughout this whole two years, that all came from my dad. I, and I wanted to put that character in there, so because my dad was always again, funny with muscular dystrophy, and it, and the thing that was really amazing, the thing I really liked about that people with handicap loved our shows. Any kind of handicap loved it because. Jim, especially in a, in a, in, a, in his character, and this is what I try to do. The shows they didn't make any big deal of it. Just a fucking guy in a wheelchair. It's not like you know, oh poor guy. He's like, you want to get laid? Yeah. You want to get high? Yeah. You want to party? Yeah. You let's bring him along. You know, so it's fun.
0: Agents,
1: um, interesting subject. In uh, general, I mean, the, the the fascinating thing about agents, I think, and I think nowadays, I think there's too many clients. You always have this thought that the agents are going to mold your career and make them help you and, and turn you and make things work for you and open doors for you and in some ways they do but ultimately agents are heat seeking missiles you know they if, if you're hot and I've been hot three or four times and I've been cold as shit three or four times it's a great thing about this industry I mean the the true true joy in this industry I think is longevity uh, because I think that's the only thing that you can look back and say well fuck at least I'm still doing it but um the idea that, that you know, but when you're hot, you're the hottest guy, you're the smartest guy, you're the best looking guy, you're the most interesting man, you're genius, you're brilliant. When you're not hot, it's like, I'll call him back later. You know what I mean? And you, in a perfect world, you'd have an agent that would be that would help you and through all the times. Um, but so, Jay Moore. Oh, Jay. Oh, I got a bunch of stories about Jay. Well, just Jay. I mean, one of the great ones was is Christopher Walken begging him to do a. Uh, uh, to do his his deal. I, somewhere we have it on tape. Uh, we walk in, and he goes, Jay, do me. You know, it's like, Jay's like, no, I don't want to. It was when he did Christopher Walken's Christ uh, Psychic Friends Network. And he, he was going back and forth and back and forth. And, Jay fin- and then Jay finally did it. And, and it was absolutely, somebody videotaped it. I, God knows where it is. Um, but no, we- Were had, you thinking of putting that in the movie? No, we just thought it was just, we, it was just a good gag, you know, it was all the way through. I mean, another great story is that Jay can do him damn near perfect. And one of the most amazing stories about Suicide Kings for me was, is after a while I got here, well, Jay will actually tell you this story. I, I'll, I'll, it's, again, where I like Jay. We were sitting there and everybody was going crazy. And, and for a while, everybody started doing Chris. I mean, to the point where, because like, Jay was started doing it. And then, and, and then you know, and the, even the AC would come up and he goes, and take two, Mulka. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, oh, my God. And I, I got to the point where, I, I, and I went nutty. One night I was like, I just couldn't fucking take it anymore. It was about 10 o'clock. And again, this is, and it's a bunch of boys, you know, it's like a basketball game again. And I'm the coach. And in the middle of the night, and I just, and I couldn't take it anymore. I threw my headphones down, knocked them out over, jumped out of my car and peeled out and bolted out. The AD called me and goes, You know, what are you, what are you doing? I go, I'm fucking out of here. I, got, I, I forget it. I, I'm just going home. And the next day, Jay walked over me. The only one that did, too, walked up. me. He goes, this is exactly what we needed. Well played, young man. <laughs> Fantastic. Sam Raimi. Sam always wears a goat and tie. He's very proper. He's really, you know, kind of the opposite of me. Um, he, he would when on American Gothic. We'd have meetings every now and then. And they were worried. So he'd come down every now because they were terrified, as I mentioned earlier. And they would come down and Sam was so great. He goes, you know, so uh, Peter, just give me a couple more jumps. And I go, mean, he goes, you know, jumps scare me a couple more times. I go, okay, Sam, that's it, because that's it. And he goes, I'm sitting here talking with you right now because they want me to talk with you to make it sound like you, but you know what you're doing. And he was, God bless him, good guy.
0: Legit and the process.
1: Oh, uh, well, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm a little bitter because, uh, well, not bitter is the wrong word. I don't want to say bitter. I, I would never, I didn't understand why they canceled Legit because, uh, I mean, I, I, in hindsight, I probably do. But uh, Legit uh, on Rotten Tomatoes has got. I think one of the highest scores I've ever seen for both seasons. It's like ninety-eight and one hundred percent, and ninety-six and one hundred percent. People are are rabid fans of it. Um, people that like it love it. Uh, uh, it has you know, like you were saying, that light and dark thing. Um, so uh, you know why uh, we got we are the first season. You know, FX has this theory of throwing things out the window as they call it and seeing if they land. I think that was a really good idea for 10 years ago, or not 10 years, five or six years ago.
0: At least they made a poster.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, well, don't get me wrong. There was a second seat. We went to Comic-Con. Uh, and, uh, and the, the actors were with us. They invited us to Comic Con. No panels, no nothing. And we looked all. And the, every other show was there. We looked everywhere for it. We finally found our poster behind the bar, which you think might be a good place. But there was something <laughs> right in front of it. Dan all was going crazy, going, "Oh my God!" There was no. There's. But anyway, that's just. It's it's the odd thing about the industry. It's not you know. It's not. It's a weird thing. Every now and then, I, I I've told, was telling my girlfriend this. She's a she's a writer, and she's got the stamp. She's got a book now that. And I said, if you get the stamp, you're good. And the stamp, uh, good in Hollywood is really relative. It, it's, it's completely about what, and the stamp is you're good by some tastemaker. It could be CAA. It could be William Morris. It could be Steven Spielberg. It could be some actor that decides to work with you. Because I don't know about you guys, but I've seen a lot of movies. This movie's great. And it's not very good. But the guy ends up, or girl, woman or whoever ends up having this huge career because they give him a couple shots and somebody decides that he is. And one of the greatest things you could have, I mean, it's one thing that, that I realized like from Suicide Kings, when it got hurt, uh, when it got, when I got, when it was uh, pushed away, so to speak, it, you know, it, everything took a huge dip and I was gone from the point. And like American Gothic, American Gothic, when it came out, I had, uh, every about nine pilots offered to me that next year i picked a pilot that ended up getting killed uh because we technically couldn't cast it that's a whole nother story um but um and then and all of a sudden and i came home to my wife at the time and said okay rolls over and she goes what it just you know and I, eh, you know it, somehow this will be my fault and it turns out people said peter couldn't cast it which is bullshit because i tried to put peter horton and all these other people into it And anyway that's another long story
0: brad garrett
1: Brad Garrett was uh what, just a great story about him. He was he really wanted to do Chris, uh Dennis Leary's role. And he was always pissed at me. He's a good guy, I really like him, really funny guy. Years ago, years later, I run into him, Brad Garrett is, you know, he has nine times as much money as I do, and nine times more clout and fame than I'll ever have. And I ran into him somewhere and I go, Hey, Brad, how are you? And he turned to me, looked like he was going to fucking kill me. He goes, You didn't invite me to the fucking premiere of Suicide Kings, asshole. <laughs> you know, and he's six foot 12. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, Brad. He goes, Yeah, just fuck. I'll never, I'll never fucking forget it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I saw him in Vegas walking out of his club. You know, I mean, it's like, Brad, you really, it's that big a deal. You know, you've got, you had 12 years on that other show where you made a billion dollars. All right. Brad Williams. I went to the Universal first with Eddie for the April Foolishness. And Brad was deep in the thing. And I started watching Brad was, and uh, I came April out.
0: April Foolishness was this huge show that Kevin, Kevin and Bean and do every year for charity. It's an amazing event. And when the Universal Amphitheater was around, it was 6,000 seats. Huge.
1: Every comedian year event. Yeah was there. And so we, uh, and I went once with Eddie and Brad came out and I, uh, uh was backstage. I came out, watched a little bit and the next day, and Eddie walked out and says, you think he's funny? I, said, I think he's really funny. And Eddie's a pretty, give, pretty giving guy. He goes, yeah, he is really funny. A couple of years later, I'm there with Jim before we were doing legit and it was Brad, then Jim, then, then Eddie. And Eddie was going to be the headliner. And, uh, uh, and so Brad comes out, I'm standing backstage with Jim and, and uh, Eddie and Brad and I start walking out, and Jim was, "What are you doing?" He says, "I'm gonna go out." So I go out and stand there, and then and Jim sends next week and Comedians are horribly competitive. I mean, I think everybody knows. I mean, they're horribly. They always like you'll be sitting back, it, because I've done too much, I've been with so many comedians for years, where they're standing back, and then they go, "Fuck, he's killing."
0: And Brad would go <laughs> on and get standing ovation.
1: Yeah, he was killing it too. You know, he's, he's you know he's a, he's a he's a midget humping a lady's <laughs> arm. you know what I mean? It's hard not to laugh, but he's also one, a really funny guy. But anyway, so we, uh, next thing you know, I've got Eddie jim and me sitting there and you know two of the best comedians in the world sitting with him and 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 especially with jim you know get every, they're all competitive and he goes he's he, you think he's funny he goes, he's really funny and this is before legit you know and he's going you think he's really funny i said yeah i think he's pretty fucking funny so anyway and it was it goes on but uh, but i'm amazed how comedians it's such a funny thing and they all know it they'll sit back in stage and be mad as shit that somebody's just killing it oh i gotta i gotta follow that motherfucker now god damn it
0: son of a bitch how do you yeah you sucked it's great but the greatest gift if you are an artist is to have somebody like Peter O'Fallon somebody work with people like Eddie Izzard and Jim Jeffries and then the next person that you want to do a sitcom with you get the call when you're Brad Williams and that that's the ultimate compliment
1: I should tell the story is Brad called me and says my dad my dad's favorite show was legit and he goes and I got this idea for you that I'd like to see so I went and saw him at uh uh Darwin, <laughs> I went and saw him uh, uh, at this show, and Brad was and Brad customized the show to my liking, which is basically going back to your theme, which again really well done, man. No wonder people listen to your fucking podcast. But uh, is it uh, is it so? It was dark and light. It was really funny, and then he starts talking about his dad had having cancer. And, you know, and, and, and how it worked and how his dad's helped him through it. So, uh, it was, you know, it was a really smarter, Brad, and B, cause usually I won't do that. You know I mean? I'll, I'll go and see a comedian, but, you know, but anyway, so did a great job.
0: Awesome. Your proudest moment in show business.
1: Oh, wow. That's a tough call. Uh... Well, I mean, there's there's been a lot of them, honestly, but uh, probably the best was, um, well, this is, this one's kind of, this one's a little uh, hard, not harsh, but um, what Jim and I did, we, they, FX didn't know who Jim was, really, because as you well know, the comedy business is a full separate business. And like I didn't know—I mean, there was another comedian I was looking at this year, and nobody knew him. And then you find out he's got a Learjet for God's <laughs> sakes, you know what I mean? So there's this whole weird life that that you don't understand. That there's a stand-up life that you know that that is in there. So anyway, we, we went into Jim and I went into pitched. I found him at CA. We went went through a whole bunch of stuff and. And, uh, and then I, we went into pitch and going in with, uh, you know, Jim or Brad or actually any comedians like, like, like me going and playing basketball with Kobe, you bounce a ball, they, they dunk it, they do all this cool stuff and then they bounce it back to you and then you bounce it back to him. And then they do another 20, but Jim killed in the room, killed the whole thing. We went through the whole thing. We, uh, I walked out of the room uh, and Jim was, what are you doing? And I said, I called up my buddy, Paul Bernard and. Portland, who was just wrapping a show. I said, we're on. And Jim goes, well, goes we're going to do this before anybody can forget about, for anybody can think about it. And he goes, with me, he goes, I just know this business and I don't want him to think about it too much. So we went up, we went up and shot the show, we shot the show for nickels. I mean, truly nickels. We piggybacked on the end of it. Right. The pilot for, for legit. I wanted to do a show like Louie where they left me alone. That was my deal with, um, not, that's what I tried to do with, with, uh, with John Langarth. I told him I really want to try to do something we with little money, with lots of lots of room. We shot the whole pilot. uh, We finished it, and then I couldn't get an answer from usually from doing I don't know 18 pilots or something like that. They always give me the results because, like I said, I can fix it. I kept bugging them for the for the results, and they finally and they wouldn't give it to me. They wouldn't give it to me. They wouldn't get to me. And finally, I says no, Peter, you'll beat us up with it. And I called up Jim and I says we we fucking nailed it. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, I just know these guys. It did well enough that they don't want to be, you know, give me the thing to come back and say, give us more money, make us, you know, make it work. So that was really, it was, you know, when you, when you do something for a nickel and do it without supervision, without anybody doing it and where can it work out. And again, the compliment to FX is they are like book editors. They don't like when they do scripts and all those kind of things, they'll come up to you and they'll say, we thought it'd be funnier here. As opposed to, I don't like that comma. I don't like that. You know what I mean? and We thought this would be scarier. Thought this would be more intense and make it better. I mean, they're, they're they're very tough, but they're very good.
0: Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you turned it around into something that drove you to more success.
1: Well, I think Suicide Kings was the biggest one, just because it was within. I mean, like I said, I was you know flying across the trapeze, you know, going to to grab onto the ring. I mean, we, I was within an inch of it all. Changing and, and, uh, you know, I think the only way I turned it around was a year of therapy, but, <laughs> you know, because it's, you know, it's just devastating. I mean, the people don't realize, uh, uh, it's amazing how people don't realize how much, particularly a writer, director, but, but anybody, but how much you put into these things. It was 18 months of your life and, you know, eight, 18 hours a day, you know what I mean? All the living, breathing, eating, and then, and then it just, you know, then it just goes away and you're like, oh,
0: God. And explain to our audience how you use that defeat to drive you to more successes.
1: Well, what oddly what, what it made me realize is that I don't want to be in the movie business, that I want to be in the movie business. And like I tell my agents, it's like heroin. Then I ended up doing rumor of angels a couple years later, which again was 13 years. And when that kind of went, that was probably the biggest, the bigger disappointment, honestly, because, but I mean, but it was such a fizzle. It was such a, you know, a balloon just losing its air immediately. It, it, for some reason, Suicide Kings was it closer, and this one was. You know, I knew this one was a long was a long shot. But uh, but after that movie, I decided. You know what? I've got a I got a, a as you said, college fund. I had two kids. I had to go to college. Uh, television's the monster that eats itself, and and I had a pretty good career making pilots uh, and writing. I, I created a show years ago called Mysterious Ways for NBC, and same thing where the, it's a fascinating thing where they come up to you and they. Uh, they, you know, like particularly on pilots, they'll call you on a Friday and says, "Can you be in Canada on Monday?" And as opposed to movies, where you go two or three years of talking about the same thing over and over and over and changing everything and and not changing very much, and we need to do some notes. The notes are tiny, and it takes six months. You know, I think honestly, I think the movie business could learn a lot from television, and I think the movie business would be smart to use a bunch of television people. It's starting to change now, but because you're just used to being, you know, much quicker. Much, much better anyway.
0: Last question. What advice would you have for the young producer, writer, director who's trying to work his way out of a cabin with no running water or wherever he is in the world and get to the level that you are? And what advice do you have for the young actor or comedian who to aspire to be the kind of artist that... Walken or Jeffries or Izzard is today.
1: Well, I mean, I think I think the t- truth is, I mean, Eddie's got this documentary called an. Uh, is Inspire, I can't remember now. He has this documentary about his life, and Eddie's an amazing story. I mean, an amazing story. Eddie, basically, as he even puts it, he wasn't funny, and he learned to be funny. I uh, will have to f- figure out what the name of it. I think it's Inspire. I think it is, but. Uh, and I, and I, he had, I helped him with it a little bit when he was this, and he just came out three or four years ago, but basically Eddie said, I mean, it's an amazing thing. is he's, he, and he learned how to be funny and he ended up doing it. You'll see it in this doc, he ended up, uh, renting a comedy club in, in London and became the MC and it with as with the MC. So he'd do two minutes of jokes and he'd do two minutes of jokes and, and, he'd, find, and he'd try 30 and then find the two that works. And then slowly built his act, and he said. Then he learned how to be funny, which is an amazing thing because you think it's inherent. And 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 uh, you know, I think he was funny, but he he was like a a busker. And you know, and you ask him, it's pretty funny. I mean, it's a really it's a really good document. It's kind of inspiring, and it's a good way to say it. He also came at it late. You know, I think in his mid thirties, things started to really work for him. And but but I think it's that and take risks. You know, I think because in the big picture, it's all about risk. I mean, I, looking back, I borrowed forty thousand dollars in nineteen eighty, which is probably a hundred thousand dollars now, which is insane. Um, you know, and I'm not recommending anybody go do it, but but you know, somehow it worked. You know, and, and looking back, at it you know my my it takes my breath away thinking, God, what if I wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been able to pay that? Uh, you know, and so I think that there's so much to do that so much is about taking risks and. And follow that thing that you, that makes you lose your, lose your, your way. In other words, you know, like I told you when I direct uh, uh, or write even too, is I, I lose time and, you know, and I, I know comedians feel this. I know Jim used to say that all the time when he gets up there and he gets, and, and that thing like Eddie says it's to go inspect that jam band theory, but watching Eddie wander around in, 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 in his thing and, and watching act, watching Chris Walken. Who, who you know plays and wanders and, and doesn't it's, you know but I think it's all discipline, I think it's working your ass off and and taking huge risks and you know but again, don't break your family and a gun to the head, you know I mean having my beautiful daughter, suddenly I was just like, i got really gotta get serious here, and it pushed me to do things I probably wouldn't have done because suddenly I'm like, you know I've really gotta get going and then going back to television, which again in hindsight, thank God. Because the movie business, if you really look at the movies, uh, all you directors out there, look at the movies. There's probably, I mean, you really look at it. theres uh, I was telling you earlier when I went to the DGA Awards, uh, not awards, DGA Breakfast for for people that make feature films. And I, I'm like all excited. I go, wow, I'm part of the club. This is so cool. And I sit down to this breakfast and there's Ridley Scott and Steven Spielberg. And all these guys that have been my heroes forever. And I look around the room and it's not a very big room. I mean, it was terrifying, really. And the guy stood up and I can't remember exactly who was the president at that time. This was years ago, but he says, congratulations, you have a better shot at being a five foot two white guy in the NBA than you do to make a movie, you know, because it's, you know, it's nobody makes movies, you know what I mean? And you realize, and the, it, I think there were, he goes, I think he said there were 313 movies made that year. So there's 313 jobs. That's ridiculous. I mean, what are the odds for that? You know what I mean? And then you start to realize. So, I mean, that, that was good for me too. That when the next one happened, and then all of a sudden, I felt incredibly fortunate, as opposed to feeling like this guy that's oh, I've done so well. You know, what I mean, and then all of a sudden it's like, Jesus, my God, did I get lucky here? Thank you, Wayne. You know what I mean? And then when the River Rangers got made, and I was able to write, direct, and produce it, you know, I felt like I honestly one of the reasons it wasn't so disappointing is I kind of felt like I'd won the lottery. Who's gonna who's gonna let me ever do this again? And since then, they haven't. Uh, yeah. So. You know, I think, uh, I mean, tenacity, I think is key. I think taking risks is key and, uh, you know, and being obsessed.
0: Awesome. Peter O'Fallon, huge, massive, awesome. Thank you so much.
1: Well, I'm amazed you had me. Thanks for having me. I'm kind of surprised you did. Your first (laughs)
0: podcast. Did you have a good time? First
1: podcast. Yes, I did. It was good. It was really fun.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. All right. And as always, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends.
1: They say it's the glory. I'll scream name. Put you on shoulder. Walk you to fame you get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for. Life is for the dreamers Stay they have all to gain It's never quite over till so it all feels the same